Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. Now, let's launch into my favorite installment so far of our epic series, The Fourth Golden Age of Rock, which covers all of the amazing musical movements of 1993. Here is Arturo Andrade to set us up. All right. So, in the last episode of our fourth Golden Age of Rock series, we dived deeply into 1992, the year that saw the shockwaves of the year zero boom of 1991, and how it carried over to a deluge of all-time classic influential albums by some of rock's all-time greatest bands and artists. If that was the case, then 1993 was the year that rock music saw the lay of the land fundamentally altered, particularly on MTV and on rock radio. All of a sudden, most of what you heard on the radio was actually good. Half of it would go down in rock history as some of the genre's best music in one of its most fruitful and important eras. As far as rock music goes, 1993 is headlined by the twin heads of the grunge hydra snake that revolutionized the genre and created a pop culture movement that, well, at least in North America, hadn't been this indebted to rock music since the 1960s. Those bands are, of course, Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and the immense anticipation of their follow-up albums to their era and generation-defining classics, Nevermind and Ten, respectively. The expectations didn't just come from the two bands' enormous fan bases either. The entire record industry, knowing how important this moment was and how important these bands were, placed ungodly amounts of pressure on them. And how the two bands responded to such pressure both in the music that these two follow-up albums contained and in their personal lives, would have ramifications for the rest of the decade and, honestly, produce drama of Shakespearean proportions. But 1993 was not all about Kurt and Eddie. It was a seminal and watershed year for women in rock music as well, with two solo artists and one band each releasing albums that would forever alter people's perceptions of women in rock, what they could do, uh, what they could write about, and go down as three of the greatest rock albums of all time, regardless of gender. It was also the year that a highly politicized brand of feminist punk rock would rise from Olympia, Washington, not far from the grunge nexus of Seattle, and kickstart uh, and a new subgenre and movement in rock. What else happened? Well, the biggest synth-pop group of the 1980s followed their evolution into messiahs of dark, ominous electro-pop rock to its logical conclusion, releasing one of the most criminally underrated albums of all time. Also, the inevitable musical and artistic backlash against grunge started to show itself on three fronts. First, you had 
the sudden emergence of Grateful Dead-inspired bands ushering in a new era for bands playing improvisational music that, at least on college campuses, would come to define the decade almost as much as grunge did. You had the expected British reaction to the U.S.-led alternative rock revolution with fresh new bands mining U.K. rock's rich past. Uh, Beatlesque and Kingsian pop, glam rock, psychedelia, and art school-driven art rock to create Britpop, a new form of rock that would galvanize fans and bands from all across the British Isles and have its presence eventually felt throughout the world. And then you had heavy metals counter to grunge, which would manifest itself in a new breed of super aggressive metal, spearheaded by three bands in particular, all three of them spanning different socioeconomic lines and and nationalities and reflecting them in their music. We're approaching the middle of the fourth golden age of rock, and with all the seismic changes that have happened up to this point, Many more to come in an era that continues to influence and impact rock music to this day. 1993 was just another great year in a long succession of years that produced mind-blowingly great and important music. So, let's dig in. Welcome back to 1993, Arturo, where I am a senior in high school in uh, Syracuse, New York, and I am months away from meeting uh, this interesting dude from Miami, Florida on the campus uh, two miles from my house. (laughs) Yeah. In Syracuse University, fall of 1993, we met for the very first time in Spanish class. We got into this big discussion about music, and then after class finished, I followed you all the way to the campus record store where I bought a copy of The Breeders' Last Splash, Yes. Which which you were not big on at the time. I am now, but I was not big <laughs> on at the time. And the first uh, cassette tapes that you ever loaned me were your Leonard Skinner greatest hits or, or best of uh, box yeah. set. So yeah. hey, so that was that was the beginning of a uh, a beautiful weird friendship uh, uh, for sure. And so I'm excited about this episode because to me, I look back at 1993 and it is an absolutely just fascinating evolutionary. Uh, year yeah, uh, for yeah, totally. rock and roll, but popular music. And we'll get into a few of the things uh, as we go. I mean, there were some things that happened that hit the radio that uh, we kind of hadn't heard before and were really unprecedented. And right. and basically, you know, within a two-year span starting in 93, you never heard shit like that again. So yeah. really yeah. just kind of fascinating stuff. So looking forward to it. So uh, on that note, do you want to uh, travel into the other side of the space-time continuum with me, dude? I am ready for that. Yes, because it's those, you know, the the parallel universe that we create is much better than the one we're living in now. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I was going to say in the parallel universe, abortion is legal and is a right. Uh, Yeah. So, I will say that if we have any pro lifers out there, uh, feel free to uh, reach out to curmudgeonrock at gmail.com and we can get into a nice discussion. Anyway, here we are in the parallel universe and, uh, Green is blue, and the folks that uh, should be filling the stadiums and getting all the love are actually getting the love. And so with that said, Arturo, who are you uh, talking about this week in the Parallel Universe? Which album are you talking about? Yes, um, it is the debut self-titled album by the British band 
wet leg. Now, let me explain. I, I, I got to preface this a little bit. On this podcast, we've talked about how in the past decade, Australia has consistently given some of the best bands in all of rock. Um, well, the compass seems to be pointing back toward the UK uh, in recent years. Last year, the London band Squid put out Bright Green Fields, arguably 2021's best debut rock album with its, uh, its hybrid of progressive rock and funky art rock. Then you had Idols, after the, the punk band Idols, after what I personally considered an early output of underwhelming albums, released the excellent Crawler last year, a post-punk alt-rock monolith that I've since downgraded from my number one album of 2021 to around number seven. Amel and the Sniffers' Comfort to Me, in retrospect, is my pick for album of last year, but that Idols album is nevertheless very good. And just this year, what we've seen is that we've had two killer debut albums, one by the socially conscious and politically astute indie funk of Leeds band Yard Act, uh, which I've reviewed on this podcast, and another by what you, Chris, so accurately described last episode as the PJ Harvey meets Black Rebel Motorcycle Club thrust of Liverpool band The Mysterines. Oh, yeah. Also, also reviewed, right? And uh, all of you listening should check both of these bands out. So, more British debut rock <laughs> that's really good um, go. the, al- the album i will talk about now while not quite as good as the latter two is still a fun as hell album worth seeking out it's the self-titled debut by the isle of white's very own wet leg you may have heard of them last year in the summer they had a monster-sized viral hit on youtube with the single uh chase lung that garnered well over a million views and even got them some airplay on both British and North American rock radio. So calling this a parallel universe selection is a bit of a stretch, but we'll run, we'll run with it. And uh, ca- calling this indie rock is also a bit of a stretch too. Why? Well, because this is really indie pop rock with the word pop in capital letters. Um, It's appropriate that we're covering this album on an episode of the fourth golden age of rock because their touchstones are quite 1990s. They draw on the breeders at their most pop with a little bit of Britpop era blur and process through a very sleek 2010s indie pop sheen. That is a whole lot of pop. And there ain't nothing wrong with it since it still manages to skewer away from excessively mainstream corporate radio pop rock. Now, lyrically, I'll admit they aren't the deepest or most profound band. Um, If you're looking for the cosmic philosophizing and emotional depth and insight of Big Thief's Adrienne Lenker, you won't find it here. (laughs) No, 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 you won't. Uh, but, but, but But you'll love these girls anyway. Yeah, what you'll find are cutely funny songs about bad parties and bad girlfriends. Sorry, bad boyfriends. But so what? So what? The two women who are at the core of Wet Leg, guitarists and singers Rian Teasdale and Hester Chambers, they're still in their mid, sorry, their early 20s or even younger than that. And, And at least they're not cranking out mopey, continuously slow love ballads where they're whining about their lost loves. You know, they're allowed some youthful leeway when they whip out wonderfully flippant lyrics such as these from the song Your Mum. You said that you tried your best. 
Why is this such a fucking mess? You're always so full of always so full of it. Yeah, why don't you just suck my dick? That's yeah, great. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I mentioned the big hit uh, Shay Slong, which sounds exactly what you would expect out of a couple of Gen Z kids who discovered the strokes for the first time on Spotify 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, the, the second single from the album, the incessantly bouncy and insanely catchy Wet Dream, sounds like a cleaned up version of Kathleen Hanna's Latigue minus the feminist politics. And the almost ballad Loving You is a lovely, melodic, is as lovely and melodic and lyrical as a romantic send off can get in today's pop spectrum. So. This curmudgeon is usually very skeptical and cynical towards escapist pop, but wet leg is pretty irresistible. Chris? Yeah, agreed. And a good call on the strokes. I hadn't made that connection because my whole thing in listening to them, like like you said, one, they're really, really charming. But to me, I hear the Go-Go's and Blur. In yeah. Like, in like we, ev- we, in like we every song. Heard blur. Brit pop blur, not yeah. later. Yeah. yeah, like Park Life Blur. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like take Park Life Blur and the Go-Go's and meld them together. And that's what makes this thing so fun because it's like you said, it's a fun record. It's cheeky. It's it's cleverly cheeky. And but the strokes, I did not catch that, which um, Def- definitely definitely in the big hit, Chase Long. That oh, sounds yeah. like that sounds like the strokes. And I guess on that note, uh, we will uh, definitely, I, both of us can say uh, we uh, uh, recommend Wet Leg, but just know that they, they're, they're a slice of pop goodness. They're not exactly a masterpiece or they're not exactly uh, like sort of uh, cult uh, material. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. speaking of cult material, yes. uh, the, the most never ending, uh, we're going to pound the shit out of you cult in rock uh, right now. King Gizzard and the Living, uh, the Lizard Wizard. King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. And I'll say it again. King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Why am I saying it? Because in the 34-episode history of this podcast, which is about 15 months, this is the fourth King Gizzard record that <laughs> I am talking about in the parallel universe. And... Uh, in a way, in the internet uh, age, that is both wonderful, but it's also a little bit unfortunate and a little bit annoying. So uh, this is actually their fifth release uh, of the last uh, year and a half. Uh, this is only the fourth I'm covering, though, because, man, the, even I have my limits. I am our le- I am our resident gizzardologist uh, these days, so I have the privilege. Uh, we have made the decision that anytime gizzard comes out with a record, uh, I will be the one that uh, that goes there and sees what's uh, happening. Yeah. Simply put, uh, in terms of releasing new music, Gizzard, uh, they need to knock it off at this point. Uh, Stu McKenzie and, and company, they need to chill the fuck out. And they just need to tour because they have enough of a cult following and they are an endearing enough band and have enough traction that they could tour for two years straight, they could do 300 shows in two years and have 300 different set lists and have very, very little overlap. So go do that for a couple years because... Be, be the new Grateful Dead, in other yes, words. Yes, yes. In other words, yes. Uh, too much of too much is too much is basically what's happening. And now we've gotten to the point. So the new record, by the way, is called Omnium Gatherum. 
and so I have made the joke on this uh, podcast before, like, when are we going to get reggae uh, uh, King Gizzard or when are we going to get hip hop King Gizzard? Well, unfortunately, we now have actually gotten a little bit of King of hip hop King Gizzard. God, uh, is it bad? Oh, it, my yeah, God. It, it, Talk it, about it, a direction they should not go into. Right. Yeah, exactly. When, yeah, like basically like when, uh, when like the, uh, the Australian prog rocker, uh, pretty boy starts trying to rap, this is not a good thing, uh, at all. So let me describe this record for you. So like a lot of their records, it is very, very long and you can pull an actually pretty good record from that. And so here we are, Omnium Gatherum. It is a two-disc, uh, one-hour and 20-minute long affair. And in listening to it several times now, I've discerned that you can pull 45 minutes of it out to make a pretty interesting and pretty compelling what I'll call an electro R&B album. Because a, a lot of this, and this must be like basically the only new stuff they've recorded, and I'll get into this in a second, but it's got this sort of uh, C-list or C-level uh, print Stevie Wonder, electro R&B, like let's think like 79, 80, 81, this, like almost like Cool in the Gang, kind of like this sort of laid back, electronicized R&B. And so they have that vibe going on. And so you do have about 45 minutes worth of stuff that would be cohesive, that would be an interesting direction. And actually has some pretty strong highlights. Uh, my personal two favorite of these songs, uh, there's The Evilest Man, uh, which starts out as kind of a smooth uh, groove uh, with that kind of mid-tempo, uh, like I said, electronic R&B, uh, light funk kind of uh, vibe. And it kind of builds into what? something that resembles prog rock. Yeah, it's one of the few songs in that album I really like. Yeah. And then there's the song, I think, that comes right after called Persistence which is a very, very funny, probably meant as a Prince send-up or a, a Prince uh, homage, uh, but it's uh, basically uh, Stu McKenzie uh, delivering bedroom lyrics, which is uh, char- it's, it's more charming than it sounds. Uh, and I, I, love, I love it when bands and artists try to do Prince, and they yeah. almost 90% of the time, 95% of the time, they never get it right. No, no, of course not. Well, but dude, we're talking about Prince. I mean, who who is going to get that right? I mean, I mean, Beck, Beck came close. Yeah, he in, came close on, on, on Midnight Vultures. Yeah, a couple of times on Midnight Vultures, he came close. Uh, but but generally speaking, like uh, uh, white potheads uh, who uh, do the alt rock thing probably uh, will never really get it to, uh, close to Prince. But hey, at least we can give him a shout out for trying. Uh, as we said, there is a little bit of hip hop on this record by all means. And uh, whatever you do, avoid Sadie Sorceress, <laughs> which is, yes, a song called Sadie Sorceress that is delivered as ostensibly a gangster rap uh, rhythm. Uh, it is corny as hell and is an abomination. So you know, what, you know what that is? This is the classic example of virtuoso musicians who look down on hip hop and think anyone can do it. Yeah. No, not anyone can do it. You have to have a feel for it. And I'm sorry, a bunch of middle class or upper middle class white dudes from the suburbs of Melbourne, Australia are more likely to not have that feel. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, they, they think they know it. You know, it's like we're, we're smarter than the uh, music theory guys. 
But uh, as we've discussed on this podcast, if you go back in our uh, in our annals, uh, we talked about what we think is the greatest hip hop album ever made, uh, namely a tribe called Quest, The Low End Theory, and we talked a lot about uh, texture. And so uh, hip hop is about texture. It's not about whatever you know, sort of musical theory or fun or whatever uh, these guys were thinking. It, it is a bad misfire. Uh, the other unfortunate thing about this record, again, so you have that 45 minutes that you can pull, which funnily enough, or amusingly enough, it's not just Prince, but a little bit, just a little bit of Gaucho era Steely Dan sneaks in there, <laughs> which is and, kind and of it's, funny. It's not, it's, and it's not even, that's, that's not good Steely Dan. No, and that's what I'm saying. It's it's the, it's kind of like the, the Michael McDonald uh, the late period Michael McDonald period of of Steely Dan and so Ew. yeah 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 exactly so so again like here we you know Ken Gizzard's trying to be the band that can do uh, anything and everything uh, and they go a little too far uh, the most disappointing thing about this record though is like I said they could have released a cohesive uh, album that sounded like they did it on purpose uh, those forty five minutes of those electro R and B. Unfortunately, they spike it with uh, a bunch of proggy, jammy, uh, space rock, uh, metal uh, workouts. A couple of songs, you got to figure already, they have to be uh, outtakes from uh, Infest the Rat's Nest, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a song called Gaia, which is an attempt to re-engage with the heavy metal style they so brilliantly did on 2019's Infest the Rat's Nest, except the lyrics are painfully stupid. Yes. And the, the music just meanders and rumbles like most meathead metal without going anywhere interesting. I mean, yeah. King Gizzard, I've always had a strong environmentalist streak in their lyrics. Yes. But come on, come on, Stu McKenzie, at least write something smart and not, quote, I am the one, I am the none, I am nobody, I am God, I am you, I am me, I am Gaia. I get it. We should take care of the earth. Duh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, yeah, no, no one can veer. And again, this is the, the bad thing about having such a massive catalog. Nobody can veer from profound to profoundly stupid uh, these days, uh, quite like uh, these guys uh, as well. So anyway, that was all over the place. But so is this record. I would say uh, at this point, I'm a little hard pressed to really recommend or uh, say, you know, any wonderful things about a Ken Gizzard record. All I can say, folks, is I'll continue to cover them, but it's really up to you. There's about 19 different Ken Gizzards that have been presented, and whatever works for you will work for you, and whatever doesn't work for you also won't work for you, and that's kind of how it has to be. They're the, they're kind of the ultimate uh, band when it comes to subjectivity uh, these days because there's just so much there. So at its heart, our show captures the kind of windy, bendy, yet somehow organized conversation that you would have heard in a living room in Astoria, Queens, back in 2000, and commits it to quote-unquote tape. I now live outside of Houston, and Arturo lives in South Korea. So we are a worldwide affair, which means we truly do try to rock your world. Anyway, on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, we do not do hot takes. We do honest takes. And we strive for the kind of depth and staying power that makes us just as relevant two years from now as it does today. We like to say we host the podcast made just for you. This belongs to you. Well then, who are you? 
You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a world where rock no longer predominates. Well, it sure as heck does on the Curmudgeon Rock Report. We not only celebrate the music, we live its majesty in full color and at full force. And we'd like to think that there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before along the way. Think we're full of crap? Drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Have your own passionate thoughts? Become a member of our invite-only curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. And be sure to tell a friend or two or three about the wacky dudes imploring you to listen to lost and forgotten albums and complaining about just how bad British rock critics are these days. Really, they, they really are that bad. Now, let's return to our regularly scheduled programming. So, the fourth golden age of rock continues. And now we go into 1993, an underratedly important year for many reasons that obviously we'll get into uh, in this episode. Uh, It's a very personal year for yours truly curmudgeons. is the year we met and both the year we started college and the year we met. And uh, we have a lot to talk about. But of course, any talk of the year 1993, you got to start with the two biggest American and most the two biggest and most important American bands of the decade. Chris, take it. Yeah. uh, As you said in uh, at the in the opener of the show, uh, this was one of those years where there was I don't think there's been a year where there's been more good music uh, in circulation or on the radio or on MTV uh, right. since. And when you have that much good music, what it makes you want to do is listen and go find more new music. And so yeah. 1993, I think for our generation, or maybe for all time is one of the great, uh, rock and roll gateway drug records, uh, years uh, of all time. And I yeah. think that, uh, Nirvana and Pearl Jam are in, uh, are indicative of that, which I'll talk about. But first, we need to talk about Nirvana and Pearl Jam. The saga continues. So, uh, so far in this series, The Fourth Golden Age of Rock, uh, one of the common threads has been we had this uh, setup where uh, the grunge explosion happens. It kind of sneaks up on us where uh, people are tired of of glam metal and the synthetic stuff and the non-real stuff and terrible music. Along comes Nirvana with Nevermind. Along comes Pearl Jam uh, with Ten. Uh, both of these bands uh, compel a couple of generations of people, and they explode. And now they're all over the place. They you know they made their money in 1992. They made their music and arrived on the scene in 1991. They started to make their money in 1992, became stars, and the momentum continued and continued and continued through 1993. And by the end of that year by September of 1993 had reached an absolute fever pitch uh, most personified or most uh, demonstrated by the fact that in its first week of release uh, Pearl Jam's album Versus sold 950,000 copies according to SoundScan uh, which at that time I think was the record in the SoundScan well it was only two years but it was the most that a, a, a debut yeah. album had sold uh, in a week which considering they're a, a white rock band that uh, uh, a lot of critics derisively, one critic called the big country of the 90s or the, <laughs> or, or the cheap trick of the 90s uh, was another line uh, for them to sell those records. Uh, that's kind of amazing. And and so 
let's talk about how this affected the music, well, the artists themselves, the bands, uh, especially frontmen Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder, and but then also the music. So when you're in a climate where you're these sort of earnest, uh, orthodox, hard rock bands you know, that are making all of this great music, and accidentally you become the biggest rock stars in the world, and you also end up on the cover of Time magazine. Eddie yeah. Vedder, Eddie Vedder was on the cover, but the article was as much about Nirvana as it was about Pearl Jam. So what are you going to do? They got famous, they got powerful, and they also got very famously miserable. Right. Uh, and so, uh, what do you what do you do with that? Um, Kurt Cobain uh, got defiant, and then he started to fall apart. And then, of course, the next year, which we'll talk about in the next episode, he he did fall apart. Whereas Vetter found himself starting to fall apart and decided that he was going to use his power to do everything that a rock star in 1993 in the MTV era was not supposed to do. Namely, uh, not go along with making videos or uh, doing radio interviews or uh, going along with Ticketmaster or doing those things. And so... Uh, Vetter didn't want to be a voice of a generation, but he came goddamn close in 1993. Yeah. Uh, and so let's just visit, uh, revisit these records. Uh, two of uh, my favorite records, or at least one of them is one of my all-time favorite records, but uh, two uh, incredible uh, albums that kind of diverge in, uh, in mood and where they are in themes. Uh, quite simply put, In Utero is one of the darkest records uh, of all time. That's putting it lightly. <laughs> yeah. And so so you, you get big on Nevermind. You know, you have Smells Like Teen Spirit and Lithium and all these sort of ironic, uh, in some ways, funny uh, punk songs that, you know, blow up huge. So uh, what's the encore and how do we feed the masses when we can't get our shit together and can't stand being the opiate for those masses? Well, Nirvana's response was to hand in a record to their label originally called I Hate Myself and Want to Die. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I, I'm sure I can just imagine being a fly in the wall in that conference room. Uh, and they made, basically they went counter and they went back to their roots and they made uh, the most abrasive record uh, possible. Uh, they worked with Steve Albini of of Pixies fame and uh, of other uh of other uh, sort of hard uh, core sort of underground indie rock of the eighties, punk rock uh, up there in, in Minnesota. They recorded that album in a span of a week. Uh, I think Kurt Cobain, he laid down his vocals in most of his vocals in like one day Yeah, uh, there. And so, uh, so they were able to, to do this. Uh, it was abrasive and uh, it's to this day, it's still kind of amazing that uh, a band even a band that was as big as that could actually release a record like that. Yeah. And the compromise it took was they brought in Scott Litt, uh, REM's producer to, uh, remix a couple of you know, the most famous songs, heart shaped box and penny royalty and all apologies. And so you get this record that's out there. It blows, you know, it's, it's still, uh, famous. It's still popular. But then when you start to listen to it and you experience the lyrics, uh, it is, uh, very dark. It's kind of amazing. Has to be the most well-regarded album about codependence, physical illness, troubled marriage and alienation of all time. Yeah. Uh, you know, when the, uh, when the most compelling, uh, lyrics in the whole thing are, 
in one instance, my shit is her milk. My milk is her shit. <laughs> and in another instance, I miss the comfort in being sad. Uh, you get the sense that the artist behind the, uh, the, uh, the lyrics is trying to tell you something that you probably ought to listen to. Uh, let's just put yeah. it this way. Uh, the record uh, should have been an intervention, but it, pre- it preceded the real series of interventions by only a few months. And as we said, uh, it, looking back on it, this is the Nirvana record that is supposed to be the one we love and revere. And that's held up on the pedestal. But we're just not allowed to because it's it's a suicide note. Although it it is highly regarded and held on a pedestal, it's always on everyone's list of the greatest albums ever made. Just not as high as Nevermind. Yeah, that, that's know? that's basically what I mean. This is the, when yeah. we think about Nirvana. This is the one that I think the conversation should center around more. Uh, but it doesn't, unfortunately, yeah. because yeah. of because of the context of the record and what it talks about and what happened uh, like six or seven months later. So uh, that's in utero. Uh, then we have Versus, which uh, was originally called Five Against One. Uh, this is Pearl Jam. It's kind of paradoxical. You, you have Eddie Vedder in his sort of uh, brooding, depressed, uh, drinking a jug of red wine uh, on stage <laughs> phase yeah. and kind yeah. of being insufferable. And, you know, he can't deal with his fame. And it's not so much that he could deal with his fame. Couldn't deal with his fame. He just didn't like the media types and he didn't like the pretension and, you know, and the, this idea that, you know, we want to do it with integrity and we're, you know, we're not g- going to start selling like milk duds and, you know, make right. like, like ritzy videos and MTV. And so what he does is he does all of this stuff with the, you know, with the, the blessing of his bandmates to basically tank, you know, this is a band that sells 950,000 uh, copies in one week and they're acting like they want to sell 95 copies, yeah. uh, you know, and over and over again, uh, but they make a really good, really clean, really well-produced mainstream rock and roll record uh, out of it that has a lot of really great songs on it. Like Daughter uh, yeah. is just a, a marvelous uh, uh, rock and roll anthem uh, about uh, secret abuse. Uh, and you've got a, you know some other stuff, WMA, which I know you mm-hmm. like more than me. I mean, I think you've said that that's your, basically your favorite song on that record, right? It's one of them. It's, it's basically Pearl Jam doing Jane's Addiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, like, yeah. you know, very, very groovy rock. And so there's some experimental stuff on there like that. Uh, I've always liked the song Blood, which, you know, uh, basically uh, Vetter reveals his punk uh, leanings. Yeah. Uh, and so, but then on the other side, this is the thing where Vetter, it sort of, it wasn't really his band, you know, the famous story where uh, he gets the demo tape while he's in San Diego, puts lyrics on it and said, hey, we're going to fly up here and you'll sing on, you know, my, you know, St- Gossard Naaman's uh, songs. But now, musically, it's basically become his band. And uh, he's got his punky side. We've talked about that with uh, with Blood and uh, Animal and stuff like that. And then you've got the more plaintive and surprisingly folksy and surprisingly uh, tender uh, side. Uh, elderly woman behind the counter in a small town with uh, hearts and thoughts. They fade away. Uh, great song about nostalgia. And uh, wh- what may actually these days be my favorite song on that record, the album closer indifference, mm. uh, which is just this marvelously pretty and uh, sort of vulnerable uh, ballad uh, that if you had listened to, yeah, they did release 
on uh, 10, but that was sort of more, you know, sort of the uh, more sort of classic, like bad company revved up kind of yeah. uh, ballad. Yeah. Right. This one is just an actually like, you know, quiet, pretty, folky song from these guys. And I think that was a curveball for a lot of people. And yep, they threw curveballs for the rest of their career. And this is kind of where it started. Uh, one thing to mention about these bands too, uh, as I said at the top of uh, this segment, they were, these were two of the great uh, uh, bands for exposing young impressionable listeners, you know, eighteen to twenty-one year old listeners to all kinds of great music because those both Co- Cobain and Vetter, in their interviews when they're so miserable, are taking uh, the time to talk about the bands they found solace in. Yeah, uh, when uh, when things got rough, in Eddie's case, it was Neil Young and the Who. Uh, one of the greatest things I've ever seen on TV still was uh, Pearl Jam inviting Neil Young on stage at the Video Music Awards to yeah. bash bash the fuck out of on uh, uh, a cover of "Rockin' in the Free World," uh, which was kind of amazing. And so he talked about uh, Neil and the Who. Uh, they covered uh, the, the the Dead Boys. Uh, they you know had all these these other influences. Meanwhile, you had Cobain who would talk ad nauseum about Sonic Youth and uh, the Pixies and the Meat Puppets and the Vaselines and other. And, 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 and the Wipers and Flipper and yes. uh, all these bands I would never have listened to if not for Nirvana. Bingo. And and that's my point is that the idea is, is that uh, we all explored these bands, fell in love with these bands, became obsessed with these bands. They tell us to go listen to the stuff that uh, that they revered. And here we are 30 years later and uh, I'll take Neil Young about 14 times over Pearl Jam. But if it wasn't for <laughs> Pearl Jam, I never get turned on to Neil Young. And so right, right. same, same thing with the who. And so kind yeah. of, kind of remarkable that these guys, uh, these two tortured guys took the opportunity to, to basically give fuck use to the media machine by, you know, talking about uh, either obscure artists or, uh, or doing things they weren't supposed to, talking about things they weren't supposed to, and making postures they weren't supposed to, and uh, more power to them. And that's what makes uh, the stories of uh, Nirvana and Pearl Jam so special. At their peak, they were at their most defiant. With that said, now we go from a bunch of uh, brooding and uh, depressed and uh, sort of uh, barking at the moon dudes to a whole bunch of revolutionary women and dudes. Yes, and these these women are badass. I called this segment 50 foot queenies. I named it after the PJ Harvey song. Now forget about just within the parameters of the fourth golden age of rock. This window that we're covering from 1991 to 97, the year 1993 is one of the single greatest, if not the single greatest year ever for women in rock. The breadth and scope of the timeless and brilliant run of albums released by female bands and artists in this particular year is pretty staggering, especially when you consider how influential, even underratedly influential, these albums were and continue to be. Stylistically eclectic within the rock spectrum, these albums ran the gamut of what was possible to be expressed from a female perspective, a perspective that had been sorely underrepresented in the world of rock. You know, so, um, all right, let's run them down. PJ Harvey, Rid of Me, 
Um, when Polly Jean emerged in 1992 with her debut album, Dry, the music press and hardcore music fans were wowed by an artist of startling originality and possessing one of the most unique voices and charismatic musical personas that rock music had ever seen. It was clear that the blues and punk in her music were, in, were integral in, ingredients in her music, but she was never really punk, nor was she ever directly bluesy. Uh, what we had here was one of the purest examples of an artist who truly assimilated her influences instead of regurgitating them and created a dark, gnarly, sultry, yet aggressive blend of rock that incorporated post-punk and soul into her blues punk core. Uh, to follow that unique album up and take her unique sound to another level, Harvey and her band hired Steve Albini to produce what would become Rid of Me. Um, if you want your sound to get darker, heavier, starker, and rawer, Albini, who produced Slint and the Pixies and go on to produce Nirvana's in Utero, Albini was your man back yes. in the 1990s. Yes, he was. <laughs> uh, um, Albini ratcheted those elements up tenfold with one of the definitive rock albums of the decade and one of the greatest, most awe-inspiring artistic statements that a woman has ever put on record. Uh, the bone-dry production and radical dynamic shifts resulted in a heaviness that made the Pixies seem lightweight and whole seem whiny by comparison. Um, sexy yet ugly, oppressively heavy yet full of haunting space, brooding yet seethingly emotional. The duality at the core of Rid of Me's music perfectly complemented Harvey's lyrical angst over the conundrum of negotiating sexual desire with sexual disappointment. And boy, are those lyrics abrasive and mind-blowingly yes. candid. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the whirlwind buzzsaw guitars and the time signature twisting drums of 50-foot Queenie are the oh. backdrop for Harvey wanting to fuck a guy up the ass when she exclaims, you bend over, Casanova. Uh, grunge had never sounded sexy until PJ Harvey's bluesy slide guitar solo and lurching riff gave the song dry a soulful desperation uh, with Harvey's bellowing how her lover leaves her dry. You don't have to guess which body part she's talking about. Yeah. PJ uh, Harvey raised the bar for emotional sincerity and expression of raw sexuality on rid of me. But just as importantly, she created a monolith of bluesy punk inflected rock and roll that few synths have matched for its sheer raw heaviness and visceral catharsis. Chris. Yeah, uh, basically, uh, Rid of Me is a better homage to Dick than ACDC's <laughs> Back in Black. Uh, I mean, that, that's, that's one of the, the greatest accomplishments uh, of, of this album. It's an amazing record. She's a great songwriter. She's a great player. That's the thing. She's an underrated, uh, underrated uh, guitarist uh, as well as a, as a singer. But man, just having the, the nerve to, uh, like, she, that, pushing the envelope, basically taking the notion of like, when we talk about that kind of unbridled libido, we always associate that with dudes. And for her to then just kind of say, okay, well, females have that too. And this is what it sounds like, uh, at its rawest. Fuck all y'all. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the, I'm the woman and, uh, yeah. here's my statement. So, yeah, it, personally, I think besides in utero, it's my other, it's my second favorite Albini, uh, production. 
Yeah. All right. The next one, another one about raw sexuality. Liz Fair, Exile in Guyville. Now, while the sound on PJ Harvey's Rid of Me was stark and heavy, Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville was an exercise in utilizing minimalism and space to maximum effect. It didn't hurt either that Fair had a batch of transcendently brilliant songs that would bluntly and candidly explore the nooks and crannies of sex and failed romance to such an extent that she would inspire hordes of women in rock who weren't afraid to potty mouth their way to emotional and cathartic release. Um, at her core, Liz Fair was heavily indebted to the sensitive, confessional, singer-songwriter boom of the early 1970s, but she updated that ethos with 1990s alternative rock attitude. Whereas PJ Harvey was searingly emotional and full of yearning, Fair was flippant, cool, and detached. But that shouldn't detract anyone from the authenticity and sincerity of Fair's songcraft and lyrics. The opening track, Six Foot One, finds Fair, who's actually five foot two, <laughs> refusing to cower to her insecurities and uses anger as emboldenment. To my knowledge, no song in rock history has ever explored the sense of desperation and hopelessness that sometimes comes from a drunken one night stand as well as a fucking run. And uh, Divorce Song expertly illustrates the complexities of the murky line between platonic and romantic relationships. At this time, during 93, um, Fair's cavalier use of foul language and astute insight into the dynamics of relationships garnered her critical attention. And listening to the album now, it's still a striking and absorbing listen, especially compared to the plethora of lightweight, middle-of-the-road, I-love-him-he-left-me generic bullshit that a lot of <laughs> contemporary female artists wallow in, and plenty of male ones, too. Yes. Um, without Fair, we don't get Alanis Morissette, Meredith Brooks, or a swath of other angry female rockers who got the mainstream success that Fair deserved. Unfortunately, she never came close to matching the brilliance of Exile and Guyville, although I personally love her 1994 follow-up and attempt at crossover success, Whip Smart. Nevertheless, plenty of bands and artists would pimp their mothers to have just one album they can hang their careers on that's as seamless and perfectly realized as Exile and Guyville. Yep, and uh, a few thoughts. Uh, really great record. Uh, the most amazing thing about it is uh, even back then when I uh, read in the press that it was supposed to be a, a, a track-by-track response to Exile on Main Street, <laughs> I mean, I thought that sounded like the most pretentious thing in the world, but lo and behold, you like look at the lyrics and listen to the songs, it actually does kind of work as a response record to Exile on Main Street. So uh, she she was very, very smart about that. Uh, you alluded to it. So Whip Smart was a very, very good record. Uh, uh, Supernova is a great great rock single uh but the what happened to liz fair though it was a really disappointing arc that she comes out with this album that everybody lauds i think it finished number one in the uh peasant job that year uh if i'm i think that's right uh but to go from there i think that she uh she wanted to be pretty and I think she was a little too focused on the mainstream. So not yeah. only do you have that crossover attempt, uh, uh, whip smart in 94, which didn't quite work nine years later, she took it to an, a really unfortunate extreme, uh, in Oh three, she released a self-titled, uh, record 
which basically she did not write any of the songs for. Uh, she worked with a songwriting team called The Matrix. Uh, had a single called Why Can't I, which is unbelievably terrible. The, the whole album is atrocious. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Pete Yorn wrote a couple of songs. You got to give it up for Pete Yorn. He graduated with us same year at, uh, at Syracuse. Uh, but Michael Penn uh, wrote uh, one or two songs on there. It's just, it's it's shocking where you, when you consider where she was uh, a, a decade before that she was willing to kind of self sell herself out. I mean, this was you know around the time when you had like Linda Perry and The Matrix and others, these song doctors that were uh, working with the Christina Aguileras and Pinks of the world to make them kind of radio cool. And then she tried it, and yeah, she's better looking than all those girls, but or all those women. Uh, and maybe she was trying to go for that, but yeah, you should have just stayed true to yourself because that's a little bit of a stain. I think that when your casual person thinks to Liz Fair, they're going to think, oh yeah, that's the why can't I chick as opposed to Exile and Guyville, which is too bad. Right. Yeah. Well, it's still one of the greatest albums of all time. And I agree. she has that, she has that to hang her, hang her hat on. And, uh, it is one, it's a classic of the fourth golden age of rock. Another classic of the fourth golden age of rock, the breeders last splash. Uh, when the pixies broke up in 1992, who would have thought that the bassist and second fiddle songwriter in the band, Kim deal would go on to have more commercial success and sell more records than the Pixies ever did. Yep. Well, that's exactly what happened with the second album by what was at first a Pixies offshoot. Um, the Breeders' last splash went platinum, sold even more in the UK, and had a massive rock radio hit with Cannonball, which actually went top 40 in the US pop chart. Yes, it did. Now, anyone knowledgeable about, about 1990s alternative rock knows how the iconic baseline from Cannonball, when, uh, whenever they hear it, you know it. Not only one of the definitive rock singles of the 90s, it may be one of the best rock singles ever. While they may have technically been a one-hit wonder, the single's parent album is one of the decade's truly perfect albums from start to finish, showing off an eclecticism and dynamic range, particularly in the balance between experimentation and pop sweetness, that arguably bettered what the Pixies showed in their otherwise sterling discography. Uh, Divine Hammer absolutely shimmers in its approximation of R.E.M.'s mid-1980s jangly pop rock. The instrumental flip side, and I just want to get along, take 1960s surf rock and pumps it with classic 90s guitar steroids and riffage. The seemingly underwater psychedelia of Mad Lucas is lovely in its waltz time sway. And Raw, spelled R-O-I, is almost prog rock in its beautiful shifts from noisy feedback to sing-along melody. Last Splash also seems to be one of millennial generation and Gen Z folks' 1990s albums of choice. In the Rolling Stones and Rolling Stone Magazine's latest list of the 500 greatest albums of all time from two years ago, the album came in at a respectable number 293. And I wholeheartedly agree. As far as women in rock go, the breeders were mostly female except for the drummer. Um, it's an indispensable classic and an indispensable classic in all of rock especially for this fourth golden age. All right, so next. Now we move on to the more radicalized in a good way and the more politicized uh, side of what we're talking about in this you know, revolutionary women in rock period. And we're talking about, well, 
let's say, let's start with Seattle. Seattle was the center of the rock universe during this time. But drive one hour south to the Washington state capital of Olympia, and you would have found another much more politicized scene brewing. Based in the city's evergreen state college, the riot girl movement, quote unquote riot girl movement, was the feminist answer to grunge and one that was fiercely independent and wary of major record labels, much less anything deemed remotely coices and rock with strong undertones of feminism had existed in the genre before. See UK post-punk band The Slits, Susie and the Banshees, Patti Smith, and L7, to name a few. Never before had an entire rock subculture identified itself and presented itself as a fervently political and feminist front. Here we had bands that were not just blasting off about sexism in society, but they were also pointing out the innate sexism and misogyny in rock and roll itself. Um, The movement's impact and effect were pretty immense in the rock underground and would influence bands and artists for years afterward, leading to the plethora of strong and proud female bands and artists that we see today. The two leading bands of this movement were Bikini Kill, featuring the indomitable lead singer and front woman Kathleen Hanna, and Bratmobile. (laughs) Now, um, Bikini Kill released a self-titled EP in 1992, and earlier in 93, released a gnarly uh, split album uh, with someone else. I forgot the name of the band, and I should know this. Um, It's called Yeah, 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 Yeah. However, it was with their proper debut LP in 93, Pussy Whipped, that the band made their definitive statement and brought Riot Girl to the forefront and to the tongues and keyboards of music journalists throughout the country. Um, Combining the nasty, feral fury of 1970s early punk with the aggressive noise attack of New York's early 80s no-wave scene, Pussy Whipped jumps out of the speakers or earphones and grabs you by the jugular while hitting you in the groin. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kathleen Hanna's lyrics were simple in their language, but confrontational and underratedly thought-provoking in their persistent challenge of of male hierarchical domination in all facets of life. They also weren't afraid to be anthemic, and the album has the feminist punk anthem of all time with Rebel Girl, Not just one of the definitive rock singles of the 1990s, but undisputedly one of the greatest rock and roll singles of all time. With Pussy Whipped, uh, Bikini Kill erased the distinction between rock bands and female rock bands. It was just kick-ass rock and roll, period. Um, They forced male rock fans who were open-minded enough to listen to and accept their message to not only be more considerate toward female perspectives, but also to understand women's position in a male-dominated world. Were they one of the best bands of the 1990s? That's debatable, but they were absolutely one of the most important. Oh, yeah, no question. Uh, I'm not a huge Bikini Kill fan, but I'll, I mean, they are uh, one of the probably, uh, at least this era, the early 90s, one of the five or six most important bands because of that uh, raging feminism, but also this idea of sort of uh, female empowerment and sort of the counter voice to uh, all of the the punk voices, especially of the West Coast and especially of their uh, male brethren up there in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I will say this, uh, and uh, because I'm a Cobain guy, uh, when I think of Bikini Kill, I immediately 
associate Toby Vale. Toby Vale was uh, Bikini Kill's uh, drummer. Also dated uh, Kurt Cobain for a while, right before he was going to get ready to write and record Nevermind. And yeah. uh, uh, the author, Charlie Cross, who wrote a great uh, Cobain uh, uh, biography a long time ago called Heavier Than Heaven, uh, theorizes that uh, a bunch of Nevermind's lyrics are about Kurt's feelings for and break up with Toby Vale. So, right. I mean, I guess, hey, what the heck, you know, you know, the, the most important female drummer, you know, she contributed to a great myth. The other major uh, uh, Riot girl movement band, the Trio Bratmobile, were led by another in-your-face firebrand frontwoman in Allison Wolf, and their feminist punk brew had a more angular art school damaged bent to it that incorporated surf music and straight-up pop. Just think a female version of Pink Flag Era Wire. <laughs> uh, their debut album from 1993, Potty Mouth, was released on Olympia's legendary indie rock label, Kill Rockstars, soon to be more renowned as the home label of Elliot Smith and the almighty Slater Kinney. And uh, Potty Mouth is certainly an apt title as Wolf curses and F-bombs her way throughout almost every song on the album. While that's normally off-putting, combined with the amateurish musicianship and low-budget recording quality, it actually gives the music a cheeky charm that's needed for one to take this kind of music in. Uh, the feminist politics in Bratmobile were a little subtler than Bikini Kills in the sense that you had to purse through the words and constant cursing, but they were evident. Uh, they were just as confrontational as Kathleen Hanna's band with supercharged punk attacks with titles such as Fuck Your Fans, Just Wanna, as in I Just Wanna Fuck You, and Bitch Theme. Uh, they would release one more EP the following year before they went on hiatus. And while Bratmobile were Robin to Bikini's Batman in the Riot Girl hierarchy, Potty Mouth is nevertheless a thrilling, engaging, Balls and vagina to the wall, punk rock classic, and an essential entry not only in the Riot Girl movement, but overall in the fourth golden age of rock. And before we leave, I'd like to say uh, one more thing. One artist that we should mention um, that when when we were in college, she was kind of a big deal. Um, her her stock has kind of gone down in recent decades, but uh, she was a big thing. Uh, her name is Ani DeFranco. Oh, she's great. Um, and she was kind of like a punk folk, you know, or punky folk or folky punk <laughs> kind of thing. And uh, um, she started out in the early 90s and she was a big part. I mean, I, I would put her more on, I guess. And she wasn't, she didn't, she never identified as Riot Girl, but she definitely was, you know, um, um, her ethos was really kind of like, um, on that, and she had her own record label called Righteous Babe Records. Yep. Where uh, and she had she had a lot of songs about abortion rights and LGBT rights. Um, um, but she was more on the folk side of things, not quite rock. Yeah. More on the folky side, but she deserves a mention for for this this bloom of amazing female uh, uh, rock music artists in the 1990s. She should be mentioned. Yeah, I, I, I forgot about Ani in the sense that she's from Buffalo, New York. Yeah. Uh, so she's, yeah. She, I mean, upstate New York, she's still a hero. She's still a coffeehouse hero. Uh, you know, she has like the coolest tattoo of anybody in rock to this day I've ever seen, the, the, clav <laughs> uh, the clavicle tattoo. 
yeah. but uh, yeah, no, her, her output is amazing. And she's actually still, she's still going out there. You know, she never, you know, she had some enough success that she'll be able to tour for the rest of her life. All right. So we went through this lengthy uh, discussion, but necessary discussion on all the important great albums by uh, by women in rock and roll music in this particular year of 93, which is something special. But now we move on to one of the, an, another special album. One of the greatest albums, rock albums of all time, also came out this year. Chris, take it. Yeah, and we, we, we couldn't be far further enough from... Uh, from angry and, and uh, feminist inspiring women than Billy Corgan, <laughs> who, who uh, basically, uh, you know, if, if uh, I didn't know he had a personal life would think was like the biggest incel on the planet. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so yet we are going to talk about Smashing Pumpkins. And it was in the summer, I believe, of 1993 that uh, Siamese Dream hit the street. Uh, one of the most renowned and uh, beloved uh, records of this era. As Arturo said, it's also a, a true uh, classic uh, record uh, and uh, one that I get the honor of talking about. It's a personal uh, favorite of mine. I think Corgan is is uh, one of the great uh, uh, sort of of the sort of guitar, the sort of bombastic hard rock, you know, sort of lead guitar driven uh uh, rock he's one of those the great front men or one of the great practitioners of that kind of musical style and uh, rock uh, of all time so uh let's talk about them a little bit smashing pumpkins uh one of the greatest examples of a right place right time band ever yeah. if there ever was one i think that most uh, folks of a certain age including some of our more faithful listeners and uh, this includes even the ones that are as nerdy as me and Arturo, uh, reflexively associate the Pumpkins with grunge, uh, which, you know, Corgan and uh, Pumpkins will probably welcome. Uh, Corgan himself is a native of Chicagoland. Uh, his band uh, released its debut album on Caroline Records on May 28, 1991, uh, called Gish. Uh, that was released, that was 123 days before Nirvana's release, Nevermind. Now, Gish is a really kick-ass record, and it was also produced by Butch Vig, and also uh, featured arrangements by one of the world's best rock and roll drummers. But, like a lot of other sort of indie uh, bands experience, uh, that debut was met with a little fanfare and, and some shrugs. I mean, it didn't really uh, have too much of a profile uh, in the first year of its existence. Well, hey, there is this thing called grunge that breaks out in 1992 and the wave hits. And there's this movie that we talked about on the last episode that comes up in the early fall of 1992 called Single. And if you're going to do uh, a uh, pretty dumb movie held in an amazing rock and roll scene, you eventually are, and are bound to have an amazing rock and roll soundtrack. And uh, the single soundtrack is that it's a moment, an indelible moment in time kind of record. Uh, one of the greatest soundtracks of all time. And so you have all of Seattle's finest on that record and smashing pumpkin sneaks in there with this beautiful rock ballad called drown. And so now they're more on the radar than they have been. 
it's around the same time that there's some slow movement that had been happening with their song Siva uh, since the fall of 1992. Well, by like March or April of 93, uh, that song was all over the place. Like all of, all of uh, the guys, uh, all the, all the white dudes in my uh, high school were vibing off that record. Um, That was like one of the great weed and uh, drinking records. One of the great party uh, records for uh, white woods in a field uh, of, uh, of that era. And so they catch on. So now you have this, uh, that they have this kind of happy accident of the timing grunge uh, helps kind of put them on the radar, hard rock and great music is cool. They're there. So now they're on the verge of a breakout and low. Hey, what the fuck? They have their breakout. Here comes Siamese dream, uh, which uh, starts, uh, with the song Cherub Rock, uh, one of the great si- first 60 seconds of a record of all time, where you get this, uh, this sort of exotic uh, Jimmy Chamberlain uh, drum fill, followed uh, by this extended building uh, riff uh, by Corgan uh, that then goes into the main riff, which is just this beautiful and uh, uh, just rocking and searing uh just just amazing hook uh, for this song. And uh, it's really one of the great singles of that era or, or any era. This, so this starts off the record. And so now here you are. They get to be just as big uh, as their peers. And I would say that I would put this as the best rock and roll record of 1993 non-in-utero division. I, I, re- <laughs> I really would hold it up on that kind of pedestal. I still, it's not as good as "Rid of Me" by PJ Harvey. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, it's close. I mean, I, I, I would put "Rid of Me" uh, probably number three. From what we uh, saw on both Gish and then especially on Siamese Stream, Corgan really, really loved guitar overdubs. Uh, he professes to be an adherent uh, and an acolyte of Boston, and mm-hmm. it's pretty obvious. Uh, so he loves guitar overdubs and simultaneously, apparently he hates his bandmates, uh, <laughs> which probably explains why he played, uh, all of the instruments except drums on Siamese dream and also Gish and also melancholy and the infinite sadness. Um, wasn't it this time the bass player Darcy and she and the other guitarist, James Eha, they had an affair. They were in a relationship and the relationship was crumbling around this time. Yeah. And so, yeah. Th- and so, yeah, there was a lot of drama in the band. So you had that going on where, uh, uh, you, you've got them having a lot of drama. Uh, you also have some drug problems in the band. I mean, Jimmy Chamberlain, most famously, uh, who almost died in 96. He was a heroin addict. Again, lo- lots of drama, but you've also got Corgan, who's this you know arrogant son of a bitch, but talented as hell, but arrogant son of a bitch, who, uh, as legend has it, on, I don't know if, it, at least on Siamese Dream and Melancholy, legend has it is that uh, Eha and Retsky laid down their parts, and then Corgan went back in and re-recorded them without telling them. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, but at the same time, I think that's why the record is so good because he is a prodigious talent. I mean, that guy is a rock and roll, uh, guru, uh, if there ever was one, he's a guru of electric guitar and bass and those types of, of layers and textures and the kind of the, let's, let's explore how we can, uh, get as much depth and as much, uh, fire out of, uh, electric guitar arrangements as we can. And so, uh, Siamese dream, 
one amazing alt-rock radio anthem after another. It's loud and chaotic, but also gorgeous. And so you've got Cherub Rock, then you've got, uh, famously, you've got Today, which is, mm. uh, you know, got that really great little opening riff that then turns into this great big riff uh, yeah. that defines the song. You've got Disarm, which is a really lovely uh, ballad. And then you've got uh, Hummer, uh, which uh, is a really uh, great little uh, psychedelic rocker. Uh, same thing with Rocket, which probably has the best, uh, the second best riff on the record. Yeah. And then uh, from there, you just have stuff that's just like, um, like completely over the top or like just un- unbelievably great sort of uh, punkish, metalish, uh, like revved up uh, rock and roll in Geek USA and Silverfuck. Uh, this is where Jimmy Chamberlain is allowed to star over Corgan because you listen to uh, the drum uh, fills and the arrangements on Geek USA and Silverfuck, and they seem impossible. Like the guy must be an octopus or something. <laughs> but yeah. Chamberlain is one of the few drummers who could actually do that. You know, he's up there with like Pert and Grohl and, you know, the usual suspects among the greatest uh, rock drummers of all time. And uh, it also showed that uh, coincidentally, if that if you were a really great rock drummer in the early 1990s, Butch Vig was your man. Ultimately, though, this record is Billy's uh, show. And uh, this, uh, I guess you can jokingly call Smashing Pumpkins the greatest four-man, one-man band of all time, <laughs> if you think about it. Uh, yeah. Like I said, they, they were a famously tortured group. They had the relationship issues. They had the, the drug issues. Uh, they had the uh, resentment issues and all of this. And uh, Chamberlain had to leave the band for a while because his drug habit got so bad. And then that's when Corrigan got a little bit uh, decadent. Uh, segued into electronic drums and just which was a real bore and that they fell hard uh by the end of the 90s oh yeah but yeah, i'm honest listen man i'm i've never been a smashing pumpkins fan really mm-hmm. um gorgon's voice has always graded me um some voices just i can't listen to <laughs> his is one of them but i will admit siamese dream that is his one great fucking awesome great record so now we're gonna move so, on so yes. I'll, I'll set this up. So we go from uh, we go from from petulant, uh, uh, weird, uh, like adherents of Boston and uh, like over the top rock to uh, the darkest, deepest, loudest entry from one of the great uh, electronic and moody bands of all time. And uh, yeah. who are we talking about? Well, interesting. We just talked about Smashing Pumpkins because later on in the decade, Smashing Pumpkins would cover a song called uh, Never Let Me Down Again by the one and only Depeche Mode. Yes, indeed. And do a, pre- do a pretty damn good version of it, too. Um, and I call this segment Reach Out and Touch Dave. Yes. Because Dave Gahan is very much the story of this album that we're going to talk about by the early 1990s, Depeche Mode were arguably the biggest British band in the world, especially after the global success of their classic album violator. They weren't just an electronic pop group anymore. They had done the seemingly impossible and crossed over to both the mainstream pop charts and rock radio. Uh, this kind of rare success and critical acclaim were due to affect the band members' lives, and none more so than the life of their charismatic lead singer, Dave Gahan. Right after the Violator tour with his marriage on the rocks, uh, Gahan moved to Los Angeles 
and commenced a half decade of voracious drug use <laughs> that earned him the nickname the cat for the nine lives he must have had after several drug overdoses. Nice. Uh, reportedly, it was shortly after moving to L.A. that Gahan struck up a friendship with Alice in Chains singer Lane Staley. Well, if you're going to be hanging out with Lane Staley <laughs> in 1992, chances are you're going to come out of that as a heroin addict. Yep. And, and that's indeed what happened. Uh, but it wasn't just with drug use that Gahan had changed. His appearance and musical tastes had changed a bit too. He grew his hair long and was sporting a goatee. He started wearing flannel shirts and torn jeans to Depeche Mode rehearsals. And more importantly, when the group started pre-production on their new album at the time, he started to insist on a change in the group's sound, causing a bit of a wedge between himself and the band's main songwriter, Martin Gore. Gore wanted to continue in a generally electronic direction, whereas Gahan wanted to explore more organic and heavier sounds with rock band instrumentation. Gahan, clearly being influenced and inspired by the grunge and alternative rock going on at the time, um, the compromise that was made resulted in Songs of Faith and Devotion, a masterpiece of electronica and rock fusion that is not only the band's most underrated album, it may very well be their most fully realized, immaculately produced, inspiringly written, and greatest album. Um, I Feel You, the opening track and the first single off the album, takes the same kind of bluesy guitar riff utilized in Personal Jesus and uses it as a launching pad for an expansive, sensual, sexy groove monster of a track. This is the album where Martin Gore gets to show off his unique guitar styling. Mm -hmm. And starting with this song, he does it on this album more than on any other Depeche Mode album before or since. Uh, even the electronic sounds and textures are different than on any previous Depeche record. Walking in My Shoes and Mercy in You see the group take trip-hop beats and rhythms pioneered a few years earlier by Massive Attack and inject them with classic Depeche Mode emotional drama and beautiful melancholy. Toward the end of the record, Rush, the, tr the track, not the band, the track, <laughs> uh, finds the band uh, tackling the kind of industrial techno rock that Ministry and Nine Inch Nails were known for and nearly beats them at their own game. Um, one of the truly underrated songs in the entire Depeche Mode discography, uh, Rush showcases how brilliantly amorphous and eclectic the band were and how they could adopt any style and not only make it sound authentic, but also definitively Depeche Mode. They even take a stab at gospel with the track mm -hmm. Condemnation, which is ultimately a showcase for Gahan's stunning vocal performance in an album that's brimming with them. Um, and then there's the epic centerpiece of the album, In Your Room, a moving, powerful, soulful meditation on how crippling and incarcerating romantic obsession can be. Um, the album was immensely successful on a commercial level, peaking at number one in several countries, including the US and the UK. It was critically praised as well, but for some reason, the passage of time has buried this album a bit as far as the pantheon of great 1990s albums sure. go. It's unfortunate because Songs of Faith and Devotion is, at least in my opinion, the most seamlessly flawless and wonderfully flowing album 
and Depeche Mode discography. I even rank it higher than the much-adored Violator and have it prominently in my list of 500 greatest albums ever. Uh, it's an absolute stone-cold classic in the fourth golden age of rock. Chris, I know you've always been lukewarm on Depeche Mode. Is this finally the Depeche Mode album that you can listen to start through finish? You know, honestly, uh, not quite. But uh, (laughs) now over the life of this podcast, because we've talked uh, several times about Depeche Mode, I've become a little bit more familiar with this record, Songs of Faith and Devotion. It's pretty good. It's I like it better than Violator at this point, to be honest with you. Uh, Violator's got the great singles. Uh, I also like the stuff uh, that they were doing, uh, you know, some great uh, reward and, uh, you know, music for the masses and that kind of stuff that they were doing in the 80s. Uh, But there's a trend, though. Like one of the things I can say about this record and about their peers that all those bands, you know, whether you want to, there's the industrial bands that, you know, obviously Depeche Mode basically invented that genre, but you have the goth uh, bands like the Cure and the Joy Divisions and the New Orders and all, you know, the, all of those peers that were in those sort of early 80s, uh, you know, sort of pioneering bands. I guess you can put the Smiths in there too. As they go along from like, you know, they go from like 81, 82, 83, 84. Then as they get into the 90s, they all get louder. They, yeah. they all start rocking harder. The stuff yeah. gets faster. The stuff gets angrier. The stuff gets druggier. Um and except, except for except for the cure, they kind of had a de- they went down in the nineties quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, well, the quality. Uh, yeah, I mean, they got a little bit more. Uh, yeah, they, they they got a little bit more ballady. I guess the cure doesn't count, but like ministry sure as hell does. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, they 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 really cranked it up. But it's just kind of interesting to me that, and we talked about this in the last uh, a couple of episodes ago, where even like Nine Inch Nails. You know, they start off like basically wanting to be Depeche Mode when they grow up. And then four years later, they're rocking balls, you know, yeah. <laughs> and they figure out, okay, yeah. we got to capture the power of what we're doing live and we got to bring that in the studio. And so, uh, so industrial by this point, it, it kind of started off as electronic. It started, definitely started off as electronic music. It was more akin to dance music, but by night, right. but by 1993 with uh, songs of faith and devotion, it was rock. It was rock music. On this episode, Chris and I delved into 1993. On the next episode, the fourth golden age of rock moves into 1994. While some say the death of Kurt Cobain was the end of an era, the curmudgeons will argue that it was rather an era-defining moment that would split the fourth golden age of rock in two halves. Soundgarden releases Super Unknown, a masterpiece that finally puts them in the pantheon of hard rock reserved for their heroes Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. Pearl Jam unveil a new sound with Vitalogy, arguably their greatest album, but their bitter war with corporate ticketing agent Ticketmaster threatens to derail their career. Oasis and Blur become figureheads for the new British rock revolution as Britpop booms. Nine Inch Nails bring industrial music roaring into the mainstream with the all-time classic The Downward Spiral. American indie and alternative rock has a banner and halcyon year with some of the greatest rock albums ever made by the likes of Pavement, Beck, Weezer, Guided by Voices, and Built to Spill. And, of course, new metal and pop 
punk fire their first shots as Corn and Green Day emerge. Join us as we relive the year in rock of 1994 as the fourth golden age of rock continues. All right, so there's no transition to the next segment. You can't get any less Depeche mode than this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it, 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 exactly. Uh, so uh, Depeche Mode was a song that you could you could dance to, and but you you couldn't really jam to, and you you, you, you didn't really want to like hang out with your buddies and smoke pot and you know do shrooms and you know uh, throw a frisbee. Uh, you well, couldn't do that. Are, you, are you telling me the the improvisational extended twenty minute version of the policy of truth isn't your jam? Chris? No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, the the uh, yeah the the thirty one minute pe- uh, version of people are people. Uh, you know, with with the brilliant uh, uh, flipping solo by Martin Gore. Nope, that doesn't work. So yes, we are talking about jam bands, and uh, nineteen ninety three. I think was uh, when what we know as the jam band scene effectively uh, broke out. And yeah. uh, became a thing, and it most uh, it definitively became a thing through the Horde Festival. And right. So we'll talk uh, about uh, that a little bit. Now, I guess one could argue that all music, in one way or another, is jam band music. I mean, hey, even back like three hundred years ago, friends would get drunk or high and play instruments together. Uh, blues har- blues harmonica, harpsichord doesn't really matter. Uh, now you've had the Grateful Dead. Remember, they started out as a jug band or a skiffle band and then evolved into a scene, you know, the scene. So, you know, this all had kind of precedent. So while we associate uh, the label jam bands with the 90s, we can't give anybody credit for inventing an actual genre here. Uh, if if that's the case, though, then uh, what the hell happened in the early 90s and why do we still goof on Gen X stoners? And the whole notion of laying on a lawn and eating magic mushroom burritos. Uh, <laughs> really, I guess you could say all hail John Popper. Uh, the Blues Traveler frontman uh, and harmonica master was one of the most unusual and most unusually charismatic artists of his era. Uh, to remind folks, he was the big heavy guy in the uh, in the, the cowboy hat and the uh, the vest full of harmonicas. That was would jam like a motherfucker up there uh, with his harmonicas, uh, with uh, with Blues Traveler, uh, yeah. re- really really special musician. Uh, but the guy he also po- he possessed a casual Cela V genius uh, that extended beyond the songwriting and his playing, and to and it extended to the spaces and places and scenes around him. If not for John Popper, I can argue that the um um, um mushrooming. Of the jump <laughs> of the jam band scene uh, we saw in 1993 does not happen. Let's back up a year uh, here. Popper founded the Horde Festival tour in 1992 because of a very simple itch. Uh, he wanted to play outdoors during the summer, uh, but couldn't afford to do it on his own with his bandmates. He didn't want to be stuck in his little club indoors in June. He wanted to be out like basically having a party on a lawn. So he looked around and he saw that there were a number of other jammy bands and their peers and their friends who basically needed the same lift and actually had the same desire to, you know, have these sort of outdoor shows. And then he also saw that there were these thriving touring corridors 
for Travelers and Thieves, to crib the name of Blues Travelers 1991 record, uh, Popper added all that up and he said to himself, you know what? There's a lot of there there. And so that's where the Horde Festival really comes into existence. Uh, now, uh, we need to discuss what I call the, these touring corridors. Uh, what am I talking about here? Uh, there's really two of these touring corridors that made these jam bands and kind of fomented the scene. Uh, one centered on New England and upstate New York. Uh, yes, I said upstate New York. Uh, even though Blues Traveler and their peers in Spin Doctors were Manhattanites, uh, it was places like uh, Portland, Maine, uh, Albany, New York, Saratoga, New York, Buffalo, New York, Syracuse, New York, and then yeah. other places like Mansfield, Massachusetts, and Holmdel, New Jersey, uh, that kept them and other breakout acts of the era like Burlington, Vermont's very own fish, showered and fed. And uh, the other corridor I'm talking about centered around Atlanta. Uh, widespread panic uh, rose to mm -hmm. prominence in Athens, Georgia. Uh, they were University of Georgia guys. And then uh, Aquarium Rescue Unit, who I had completely forgotten about uh, until uh, this episode came back up. Uh, they, and, 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 they, and then a band that became a de facto jam band, the Black Crows. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> they also were Georgia guys. Uh, yeah. And they're, they're from Atlanta. And so and so from there, you know, you have, you know, kind of Atlanta. You've got Pelham, Alabama. You know, you've got Athens. You know, you've got... Uh, you've got Savannah, and so you, you get kind of the same setup as you have uh, up there in my native Northeast. So you've got all the, you've got these bands, and they've built incredibly organic followings within those corridors. And so, you know, lo and behold, the lineup and the format of the first horror tour in 1992 was kind of obvious. Blues Travelers, Spin Doctors, Widespread Panic, and Aquarium Rescue Unit were the headliners. Uh, Fish and Bella Fleck, they kind of alternated as the fifth band. Uh, <laughs> Fish was the fifth band. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that's the thing. Well, well, Fish played the first four shows and Bella Fleck played the second four. And so it was yeah. it was eight dates and they split it into, I think in July, they played four shows in the Northeast, including one in Syracuse, uh, actually. And they played four in the Southeast uh, in August in, in and around Atlanta. You know, they It was like Pelham, Alabama, uh, Atlanta, uh, like Columbia, Maryland, and Charlotte. A little after this first horde outing wrapped up in August of 1992, a funny thing happened. Spin Doctors blew up. Uh, yeah. And in the fall of 1992, uh, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong becomes a thing, yep. followed by Two Princes uh, the next spring. And also that's the time where Fish and Blues Traveler uh, broke out nationally as revered uh, touring acts. And then they, of course, both of them blew up uh, on the radio or sort of in mainstream prominence in 1994. So what started out as this little eight amphitheater rolling party became a full-fledged 25-date tour in 1993. So now we have actually a big thing that is catching speed as it goes along. So the 1993 uh, tour, which again is 25 dates and, you know, basically is a nationwide uh, jaunt. Uh, headliners there. So again, you've got Blues Traveler, Widespread Panic, and Aquarium Rescue Unit are back. The Samples were a pretty good band. Uh, Big, Ted, Big Head Todd and the Monsters, who weren't. I remember them. <laughs> uh, who, who were not a good band, but at that point yeah. did have a following. So the idea yeah. is the whole idea of the horror tour, it basically became anybody that had kind of a live following who was, who was pretty good live or was yeah. more known for live than albums 
would, would go on this tour. And then All Good uh, was the other hot, uh, headliner. Another was it was it was it the Dave Matthews band part of this thing? Uh, not yeah, they were at this point, but they weren't a headliner. And I said so. Okay. There were other bands that played uh, that they, th- those six I mentioned. They played all the shows, and then uh, bands like the Fish, the Almond Brothers. Actually, uh, fu- yeah. funny story that one of the shows in the Northeast, uh, right before the show, Dickie Betts gets arrested, I think, for drugs, and so <laughs> I think like John Popper or somebody had to step in. Uh, but you know, Melissa Etheridge played some shows, Ouroboros. I don't know if you remember them, but, uh, they, they were great. Um, and, uh, Warren Haynes, you know, obviously, I mean, you can't have a good jam band, band festival without, you know, Warren Haynes, uh, yeah. whether it's government mule or whatever else. So, and then Dave Matthews played there. And so yeah. it becomes this big thing. It's, it's the, uh, rolling jam band tour. And this is where all of the hippies could get together for the summer. It was kind of like the hippie version of Lollapalooza. And, yeah, and, it was. And it keeps blowing up. It keeps on growing and rolling until 1998. Obviously, this, like I said, fish is getting bigger during yeah. this period. Yeah. Uh, Blue Stravelers getting big. Like I said, Black Crows are, are, are doing good. Uh, Widespread Panic has its moment. You know, like I said, Big Ted, Big Ted, uh, uh, Big Head, Big, uh, <laughs> Big Ted, Big Head, uh, Big Head Todd. <laughs> <laughs> you know, obviously, you know, you know, they have a huge hit with bittersweet persuasion and all of this. And so then we get to 1998 and I imagine that's when Popper finally recovered from his dose of mainstream stardom and went, wait, wait a second. What the fuck happened here? So <laughs> now let's talk about the 1998 lineup. So by now yeah. the Horde tour has gotten kind of commercial. And yeah. so, you know, how do you, you know, how do you kind of give it a star wattage? The headliners now are Blue Traveler, of course, Bare Naked Ladies, uh, ew. Ben Harper and the Innocent Criminals, ew, ew. and Alana Davis, who you know is okay. Mm. Um, and then you had a whole host of other bands come in and out uh, of of being on the Horde tour. Uh, here are some of the other bands that made appearances on a Horde tour, uh, at least a few uh, uh, during the '98 tour: Cherry Pop and Daddies. Yep. As in the Zoot Suit uh, guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fastball, uh, who had, you know, a couple of great singles, but were not a jam band. Uh, Guster, which was a jam band, but was God fucking awful. I never liked yeah. Guster. Marcy Playground, uh, of all bands, Marcy Playground was there. I know, right? And, yeah. and, and finally, for four dates or five dates, Smashing Pumpkins. Jesus. They, they smashing they, pumpkins. Yes, on the horror tour in 1998 when they had no drummer. So go <laughs> go, go fix or or when actually when Kenny Aronoff was uh, was their touring drummer, which <laughs> kind of amazing. Oh oh, we lost Jimmy Chamberlain. Whatever are we going to do? Oh, okay, we're going to get one of the few be- drummers in the history of rock and roll better than him, uh, <laughs> Kenny Aronoff. So yeah. anyway, so yep, that was that, and you know I think Horde kind of melted down uh, from there, and they they wrapped it up after 98. But we will always remember that initial burst of jammy magic. Well, I got two points, and, yep. and, and, and to, to finalize this, I actually went to the Horde tour show, nineteen ninety seven in Miami. Uh, do you know what the headliner was? Who's that? Neil Young and Crazy nice. Horse. Nice. Um, uh, un- unfortunately, he was the only good act on the bill. <laughs> oh, wait a second! I, I went to this too. Wasn't uh, Primus on there too? 
No, but yeah. well, they, it alternated. Neil Young was the consistent headliner throughout yeah. the whole tour. Mm-hmm. The, when it when it came to Miami, what I got were um, uh, Toad the Wet Sprocket, uh, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, they had to end their set two songs into it because uh, Dickie Barrett, the lead singer, got into a fight with security. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Squirrel Nut Zippers. Um, we were promised Beck, but Beck didn't show up. Yeah. So it was a pretty shitty uh, uh, lineup, except for Neil Young. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and actually, the one I did, Soul Coughing, was on. And a very, really funny story, real quick. So I went to the Horror Tour in 97 in Mansfield, Mass, uh, with some friends. And Beck goes up there. And there was a guy about six rows down from us who had a sign that read, I'm not kidding, Beck is the shits. <laughs> plural. Well, plural. Not not singular. Plural. So, <laughs> not a fan of Beck, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and the second point I have, and the last one, I find it ironic that this whole, not only the tour but the whole jam band scene, that honestly still exists to this day. Like there are still college kids who go see hippie jam bands play. Um. Blues Traveler and the Spin Doctors are the ones who kind of were the spearheaded, the spearhead bands of this. But really, within the course of a year or two, it was the Dave Matthews Band and Fish who would become yeah. the spearhead bands. Dave Matthews on a mainstream level, appealing to all you know the the, the beer chugging you know sexist frat boys, and then you had Fish who had no nothing no no MTV airplay no radio airplay and very much the truest to the grateful dead spirit sure. of fostering their own culture and they became even bigger than Dave Matthews band arguably so while we're here focusing on jam bands let's bring up something that became a big deal in popular music in 1993 because it became acceptable to celebrate it in its um bluntest of terms on the radio and in the mainstream. We are, of course, talking about hip-hop's glorification of marijuana, which, when combined with gun love, gave upper-middle-class college kids a measure of vicarious thrill as well as some damn good party music. Snoop Doggy Dog, as he was known back then, followed up his star turn on Dr. Dre's classic The Chronic with his own star vehicle, Doggy Style. The album's breakout hit, Gin and Juice, was an awe-inspiring production that finds Snoop at a party that teeters on the edge of disaster, but which holds together beautifully in the end. Snoop Dogg to this day remains the godfather of weed rap, who this year found himself performing as part of the Super Bowl halftime show. Somehow, I do not think this performer is considered menacing or subversive nowadays. There also was Cypress Hill, whose 1991 self-titled album was a revolutionary blast that gave Latinos from Los Angeles a hip-hop voice. While Be Real's nasally voice and lyrics could be quite tense and quite ugly, there were enough humorous and catchy odes to weed and gunplay for the group to attract a similarly wide collegiate fan base. And so came the follow-up record Black Sunday in 1993. Its most famous song, Insane in the Brain, was a banger on par with Gin and Juice, and was inescapably a party song. Like Louis Armstrong hit the trumpet, Be Real hit his bong. And that was that. Moving on. We move over to something completely different. Uh, we're going to leave the United States 
And we're going to go to the United Kingdom. And the bright melodies, brash attitude, and the super catchy hooks and adherence to traditional pop song structure, the exact opposite of jam band music, (laughs) that were hallmarks of most of the bands of the 1990s musical movement known as Britpop, were also an emphatic, an emphatic backlash against the darkness and the heaviness of American grunge rock and much of what constituted alternative rock at the time. And let's face it, it was bound to happen. You know, At this time, with the exception of The Cure and Depeche Mode, the UK hadn't really dented the American musical consciousness since the synth-pop boom from over a decade earlier. Britpop would do that very soon, especially led by a particular band of rogues from Manchester, who shall remain nameless for now. But here are the key albums and singles that launched Britpop and put it on the map in 1993. Really important. The first one, and arguably the most important, Blur, with Modern Life is Rubbish. Now, when the quartet Blur emerged in 1991 with their debut album, Leisure, they revealed themselves as a charmingly eclectic band with some serious songwriting chops. They made waves on the indie scene with the shoegazer pastiche She's So High, and even had a UK top 10 hit with the funky, danceable, very Manchester-sounding There's No Other Way. But an arduous tour of America to indifferent audiences exposed Blur to the monotony and homogeneity of American life, particularly in the countryside and the suburbs that far outnumber the big cities. Fast food, shopping malls, Christian preaching on the radio, right-wing cultural propaganda on television, bottom-line profit is the only thing that matters, wash, rinse, and repeat. That's what Blur were exposed to for a bunch of you know young London kids who'd never left the British Isles. Even worse, they had the insight to make the connection between what they saw in the U.S. and how the typically American culture of crass commercialism and relentless consumerism had influenced what they saw as British life having become. Enter the inevitable change in musical direction. Blur decided to double down on their Britishness by looking Hmm. back to Britain's musical past. On one corner, they embraced the classic 1960s pop values and societal critiques of the Beatles and the Kinks, especially with frontman Damon Albarn's song structures and lyrical character vignettes driven home by Albarn's purposely exaggerated Cockney accent. On another corner, they sharpened their attack with the art school-inflected edginess of 1970s British post-punk, especially with Graham Coxon's gnarly and original guitar sounds. On a smaller corner, they slightly incorporated some of the humor and levity of 1980s synth-pop. What resulted was the definitive first blast of authentic Britpop, Modern Life is Rubbish. The album title zapped because, like Auburn's hero Ray Davies of the Kinks, as he brilliantly demonstrated more than 20 years earlier, the record is dripping with anger and disenchantment with modernity in everyday life, especially regarding societal values, conspicuous consumption, and obsession with technology. 
gee, does that ring a bell? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, For Tomorrow starts the album in very Kinksian fashion with Coxon's staccato riff, impossible to ignore sing-along chorus, and Auburn's depiction of the existential angst of youth trying to get by in a society and culture they don't identify with. Chemical World hammers along with Coxon's thunderous riff and Dave Roundtree's pounding pounding drums, depicting more of Auburn's lost youth losing themselves with drugs in order to cope with an increasingly plastic and fake Britain. Uh, The lyrical perspective changes on advert a bit, with with a stuffy conservative businessman being inspired to think what life or a life outside mundanity might look like if he just took a vacation. Hmm. Uh, The track also rocks with a conviction that people rarely gave Blur credit for. Um, The purest and most sublime pop moment on the album comes with Turn It Up, with its gorgeous build-up in the intro and Coxon's beautiful chord progressions contrasting with his abrasive, squawking lead lines. Um, Blur would release their masterpiece in Park Life the following year. And yes, we'll go into that album in detail on our next 1994 episode. But Modern Life is Rubbish provides not only a prologue for that album, but also a classic entry point into all things Britpop. Next one, briefly, The Verve and their debut album, A Storm in Heaven. Now this is more like it. For those of you who remember The Verve as that one-hit wonder band, at least in the U.S., whose bittersweet symphony was contested by former Rolling Stones manager Alan Klein for its sampling of strings from an old Stones song, thereby royally fucking this band over (laughs) you may find it interesting to know that the verve were a lot bigger in the uk and europe and had several other hits this their debut album from 93 is a swirling psychedelic powerhouse of a record that takes the shoegazer sound of earlier bands such as my bloody valentine and ride and injects it with emotional weight shifting moods Richard Ashcroft's hauntingly soulful vocals, and most importantly, a beautiful tapestry of interweaving riffs and melodies that are as compelling as any traditional songcraft. Uh, Star Sail starts the album in majestic and almost hymnal fashion, with Nick McCabe's acid-drenched guitars parting the skies. You have Slide Away, one of the album's singles, Uh, It's a powerful anthem that portends the radio-friendly crossover success they would have uh, four years later. Uh, Most of the album's tracks sway in lovely and dynamic fashion from one mood to another. Um, Thundering, powerful riffs, peaceful, fleeting guitar flurries, scronky, aggressive saxophones, shimmering flutes, glistening guitar passages that evoke the album's naturalistic lyrical themes. Um, You have Ashcroft in romantic crooner mode. Ashcroft in desperate pleading shamanistic mode. Uh, It's all held together by Simon Jones's lith or life bass playing, which has a grounding effect and prevents the music from disappearing into the heavens. It's really fucking great stuff. Um, The Verve would take this formula to darker and heavier extremes on their next record, which we'll discuss in our 1995 episode, before breaking up, regrouping, and putting out a world-conquering classic in 1997, and then breaking up again a year later. (laughs) However, any discussion of 1990s psychedelia in the fourth golden age of rock should start with this album. 
another of these Britpop legends, Radiohead, yes. and their debut album, Pablo Honey. Now, Radiohead went from being an obscure, nondescript little band from Oxford, England, to being authors of one of the defining rock singles of the 1990s, and quite possibly of all time, when Creep blasted out of a cannon in early 93 to become a worldwide smash hit, reaching the top 10 in the UK, Australia, several European countries, and even the Billboard Top 40 chart in the US. Inexplicably to this day, it's still their most famous song. Yes. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's crazy considering they reached even greater critical and commercial success when they raised the bar for ambitious art rock with their string of all-time masterpieces, The Benz, OK Computer, and Kid A. But nevertheless, in 1993, Radiohead were part of the early Britpop boom, and Creep is an essential single in the timeline of the fourth golden age of rock. The thing is, I've never been a fan of that song. It's one of my least favorite Radiohead songs, and the album it comes off of, Pablo Honey, isn't really that good. Um, What you hear on Pablo Honey is a band that has a great sound, particularly Johnny Greenwood's inventive and original guitar sound, but it's lacking in compelling songwriting. They would make a quantum leap in that direction with the Benz uh, in 95, but on Pablo Honey, there are only two tracks that do it for me. The follow-up single to Creep, Anyone Can Play Guitar, is a tasty slice of alt-rock menace with Colin Greenwood's slinky bass guiding the verse before it explodes into this soaring chorus and eventually into a weird-ass breakdown in the intro. Stop Whispering is, at least for me, the album's highlight, with drummer Phil Selway leading the surf music-inspired rhythm with a buildup of tension that erupts with Johnny Greenwood's searing guitar work. The track is also a showcase for frontman Tom York's incredible vocal range, which we would hear a great deal more on in later records. But, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't love the album. I don't love Creep, but Creep is important. It's a big part of 1993. Chris? Yeah, my, my, here's my take. I actually do really like Creep. I mean, I thought it was a great song, very hooky. Um, really good, uh, guitar stuff going on there from Greenwood and for, you know, great vocal from York. And so that's kind of a lightning in a bottle, uh, single the, I bought the album really boring, uh, really kind of, eh, I didn't think basically at the time I was like, Oh, okay. This is going to be like one of the great one hit wonder bands of the era. Cause you've got yeah. this ubiquitous single that is never going to go away. And then this, like I said, really just inconsequential kind of meh record i have never seen any other band go from their first record to their second record and improve as much as radiohead the first the first time i heard the bends i was absolutely shocked at how great it was like yeah like you wouldn't have thought that that band had it in him uh i guess you know johnny greenwood showed he could play but who knew that Johnny Greenwood had that much ambition or that worked that hard to get better and uh, that those guys were really working so hard to increase their vocabulary and challenge themselves and uh, were as cerebral as they were. Where, where the fuck was this? Uh, Pablo Honey. And then they unleash it. And then they, and so the Benz is just an incredible fucking album. And then obviously then, you know, the, the ob- okay computer yeah, yeah. the obvious ones yeah. okay computer kid a right. and easy act yeah uh but just the the leap 
I would have never thought it like, okay, it's, it's the great one hit wonder, uh, radio single of the summer of, well, one of the two, uh, that and no rain. Uh, but yeah. basically you put on a rock radio or you put on MTV creeping, no rain, creeping, no rain, yeah, yeah. creeping, no rain every hour, <laughs> every day for about four yeah. months. Uh, but so who I still to this day, I mean, it just floors me, uh, when I think of that, when I, you know, the first time I heard, uh, planet Telex uh, yeah. off of, uh, the bends and I'm like, Oh my fucking God, is that the same band? Cause this, yeah. this is brilliant. And that wasn't. So we go, we go from that to, uh, well, how are we going to transition from uh, Britpop to emo, Chris? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't even, I guess you can call this pre-emo. And so, proto, proto-emo. Proto-emo, where, well, actually, yeah. 93, I guess you could call that proto-Britpop, or that's kind of like, uh, you know, the yeah. kind of early stage Britpop. This is like, I guess, early stage emo, although to call these bands and these uh, albums emo is a little bit of, meh. I don't know. Yes, it is, but you can hear it. You yeah. can hear a bit of it in there, right. you know? But but here's what I, I I'd like to frame it a little bit more. Yes, you can see that, you know, that this could have been an influence on emo. But 93-94 in terms of the uh I guess you could call it the sort of the hard rock, uh modern rock, the evolution of collegiate rock, I guess you could call that. Yeah. You're in this pocket of about 2 or 3 years that's extraordinary and nothing had sounded like it's uh, before then. And nothing has uh, sounded like it since it's this evolutionary moment where you get stuff that it's like the inevitable shift away from that. It's in this spot for a couple of years and then it shifts towards what we'll call emo or power pop or whatever you want to say. But you have this sort of remarkable uh, like middle spot. So if you have right. a, you have like a kind of a, here's how I'll put it. Boston plus Seattle plus Minneapolis. <laughs> and that equals a style, a tempo and a sensuality uh, that really again, only existed for those three years. You had melody, you had mystery, you had crunch, you had heavy heart with a heavy bass. And it was proof that the underground traveled and worked its way from the big markets into the less exotic places and to smaller city would-be geniuses. And we're talking about right. places like Asheville, North Carolina, and Cincinnati, Ohio. Now, let's we're going to talk about two of these bands that are in yeah. this sort of proto-emo or pre-emo sort of evolutionary sort of mid-phase that I'm talking about. And that's Archers of Loaf and the Afghan Wigs. Uh, first off, we're going to talk about the Archers. Uh, quote, stuck a pin in your backbone, spoke it down from there. All I ever wanted was to be your spine. With that kickoff first from Webb in front, Asheville's Archers of Loaf, who sported some pretty obvious dude influences, uh, thrust us into some very, very undude-like territory. Uh, that's only part of what makes their debut uh, from 1993 Icky Metal so glorious. Uh, firstly, it's really one of the most economical eras uh, albums of that era. Uh, 13 songs and 37 minutes uh, with a hard-charging sense of dramatics uh, that makes a two-minute love song hang in the air uh, for what feels like 10 minutes. It's a wonderful mix of heavy, dreamy, wonky, and bouncy. Next, uh, there's those influences. Dino Jr. and R.E.M. stick out the most uh, with splashes of Big Star and Cheap Trick. Uh, this is revved-up pop filtered through gnarly guitars. 
And then there's the quote-unquote innovation, which I guess, again, can be called pre-emo. There is no idle reverence here, of course. There's a whole lot of feeling uh, translated through not just those lyrics, uh, but through singer Eric Bachman's untrained, slightly scuffed, and desperate-sounding vocals. Uh, Here's a guy who was so in tune with his emotional core that he could make a song about toast compelling. Seriously, the song yeah. the song Toast is about longing to hear the voice of a piece of toast. Hey, you know, brown toast with gleaming butter on it is pretty, you know. Uh, like a lot of uh, great uh, indie and underground bands that made a quickie debut record for a couple thousand bucks, Archers of Low quickly found that an adoring cult within little clubs and little alt zines uh, triggered... Uh, a string of tough decisions and tough luck. Uh, you know, that basically tr- the, the next few years were kind of weird for them. Uh, for instance, you know, after they did Icky Metal and it caught on uh, and uh, got the attention of labels, they had a chance to sign with Maverick Records. Uh, Bachman turned that down for a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, he did not want to be on the same label as Candlebox and Alandis Morissette. Uh, that really didn't ha- have much appeal to him. Uh, the other thing is, and uh, I hadn't thought about this in a long time, and I'm sure there were a couple of other bands, but back in the day, a lot of these sort of majors uh, had to buy out these little bands from their little their little labels. Right. And so what would happen is, is that Maverick, uh, they buy you out of your existing contract, but then it's basically in advance and you got to pay them back. And so, yeah. so the idea of this little broke band from North Carolina, uh, they aren't, they aren't, weren't really selling records. So one, they would be next to Candlebox and two, uh, they would be, uh, wage slaves for several years. So right. uh, consequently they in some ways missed out on their uh, window to blow up. But then again, maybe not, because they did open up for Weezer during uh, some Blue Album era shows. Uh, not exactly the most compatible opening gig, and yeah. eventually it is one that fell flat. Uh, by the time they did get some major label distribution through Electra Records, uh, they had grown into a less unorthodox band and uh, one that was not as inspired and whose creative juices were running thin. And by 1996, and especially 1998, uh, boy bands and electropop had once again trumped loud guitar splendor. And so the Archers faded and then broke up and then became a thing of legend. But yeah. we'll always have Icky Metal. Uh, Art, thoughts about Icky Metal before we talk about the wigs? One of my favorite albums of the 90s, um, uh, they had a, this, the follow-up to Icky Metal, VV from 1995, is really good too. But they never matched um, uh, Icky Metal. Icky Metal's almost a perfect record. Yep. Um, I love it. You love it. You know who also else really loves this album? Why? Why, 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 won't you, why don't you tell me? Robert Criscow, who loves all archers of loaf albums and gave them all a's or a minuses wow um icky metal it's a very short review guitars screeching every which way beats speeding and hesitating and slamming chaos back into the box 20 something boy voices whining and arguing and drawling and straining it's the world according to indie rock 
a tantrum set to music as sharp and self-contained as a comedy routine. Orally, this is now. One now, anyway. If it has zero to say about tomorrow, why don't you just worry about that then? Hey. <laughs> I guess we could argue that the Afghan Whigs traveled a similar path to Archers of Loaf, uh, weaved as much influence and faded away just as hard. Uh, but they did it much differently, and I would argue much more strikingly. Uh, originally from Cincinnati uh, and rising in the 80s from a band wonderfully named the Black Republicans. Uh, <laughs> the Wigs were one of the first bands outside of Seattle to release music on Sub Pop. Uh, but this was no grunge band, not by any stretch. Uh, in fact, the Wigs uh, still stand as one of the more fascinating bands to me in rock history. Uh, band leader Greg Dooley, uh, his most formative musical influence was Soul. Uh, and R&B, particularly, particularly the band of soul from Motown, uh, you know, acts like the Temptations and the Four Tops. Uh, he also pulled something off that my inner asshole really envies. He, <laughs> he wrote and sang sexist, sadomasochistic, sexually self-hating and downright misogynistic songs that women absolutely loved. Uh, quote, Ladies, let me tell you about myself. I got a dick for a brain, and my brain is going to sell my ass to you, unquote. Uh, that's the most famous lyric from Gentlemen, the 1993 record uh, that broke the wigs by then a veteran band into the mainstream and into very, very heavy rotation on MTV in 1993-94. When I think of MTV during those uh uh, those years, I immediately think to the video for Debonair, which is mm. uh, the, the biggest hit from or the mo most well-known song from this record. But apparently that whole dick for a brain thing, it's a pickup line that must have worked for Dooley. So uh, there is something to be said for being vulnerable and unafraid to be a little head sick. And, you know, handsome helps, too. But I digress. So uh, what we end up with is some really sexy yet really crashing hard rock with a sensual, groove-inflicted backbone. As mentioned, the singles Gentleman and Debonair became modest radio hits and huge MTV staples. Uh, both possessed great hooks and convincingly aching vocal performances by Dooley. But they also oozed a certain brand of heartache and regret that showed Dooley was more interested in being Al Green than he was in being Eddie Vedder, making him one of the few guys in 1993, who would make that choice or at least admit to making that choice? <laughs> uh, Soul uh, has more musical versatility than the casual listener might think, but all soul music is defined by a certain bedroom slinkiness, and the Wigs had that in spades. So now, while Archers of Loaf had the bigger musical influence, arguably, on Emo, uh, Dooley and his Wigs bandmates were the look and the feel and the walking confessional. Hell, that dude from Dashboard Confessional had nothing on Dooley and, prob <laughs> and probably wouldn't have had anything if Dooley hadn't preceded him. So unlike the Archers, uh, the Wigs actually did do pretty well in major label world. Uh, you know, they had, again, those hits were modest on the radio and uh, the album Gentleman actually sold pretty well. And they hung on uh, basically until 2001 uh, when they dissolved. 
But sadly, they seem to be just as forgotten as Archers of Loaf these days. They don't get yeah. a whole lot of love, or they seem to be kind of a, a relic uh, as we go along here. Uh, no matter, though, uh, every time you hear Fallout Boys, perpetually great single, Sugar, We're Going Down, you should tip your cap to Eric Bachman and Greg Dooley for creating the Pretty Boy safe space it took to craft it. And uh, also, no a quick uh, shout out to a few other contemporaries of Arches of Loaf and uh, Greg Dooley before I kick it over to you, Art. Uh, Sunny Day Real Estate, not a surf, uh, built to spill. I mean, come on, Arches of Loaf and built to spill were treading over some of the same ground. Hum and Modest Mouse. So, Arturo, what is totally. your what is your perspective on these records? On the Afghan, I mean, you know, on the Afghan Wigs record, um, there, I think one of the reasons that they're not as remembered as fondly is that their recorded output after Gentlemen was a sharp decrease in quality. They, they, they didn't put out anything nearly as good as Gentlemen uh, after Gentlemen. What happened is that they went up. Uh, Dooley went deep way more into soul and R&B or classic 60s, 70s R&B and soul, just with a heavier rock guitar sound. And the more he did that, uh, um, the less the less better the less good he got as a songwriter his songs his as a songwriter he just he didn't have the goods anymore it's almost mm-hmm. like he he focused more on r&b soul stylings and aesthetics yeah. and his vocal prowess than on just writing really good songs i agree and i think and i think after gentlemen the band just went way down the went down the toilet yeah. um, honestly after gentlemen you don't need to listen to any more afghan wigs music yeah i <laughs> mean I, I think greg dooley is like oh i i made it to the mountaintop and and maybe he just figured yeah. he could coast because yeah, you could definitely right. tell the, the edge was gone and it was kind of like, you know, yeah. the wigs by numbers at that point. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to transition from that and we're going to focus solely on the coasts now. And, uh, we're doing quite, again, we're, we're going from vaguely emo to just sweaty, funky, dirty, grimy. Oh yeah, baby. Why and I'm calling this segment the world of sex. Mm-hmm. We went from like something that was you know you know vaguely sexual to something that's really sexy. Um, while grunge and the heavier end of alternative and indie were ruling the rock world at this time, there was an alternative to alternative rock brewing deep in the underground and in rock music's underbelly. Raunchy, sweaty, sexy, dirty, bluesy garage rock with experimental flourishes uh, was starting to be explored by several bands throughout the U.S. And this movement would see its spotlight moment during the garage rock revival of the early noughties with bands such as the White Stripes, the Strokes, and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. However, in the early 1990s, two bands from opposite coasts of the U.S. were laying the foundation for this new mongrel form of bluesy garage punk. San Francisco's Royal Trucks, spelled with T-R-U-X, and New York City's own The John Spencer Blues Explosion. Now, there's some history here that explains how these two bands are entwined, really. In the mid-1980s, John Spencer formed the spectacularly named Pussy Galore in Washington, D.C. with guitarist Neil Hegarty. Pussy Galore made a name for themselves in the underground with their extremely noisy brand of avant-garde garage punk, particularly with their 1989 classic and one of the greatest album titles in rock history, 
dial M for motherfucker. Uh, Hegarty <laughs> would leave Pussy Galore quite early in the band's history and form the duo Royal Trucks with his girlfriend, Jennifer Harema, eventually moving out of the coast, out of the East Coast, to make the Bay Area their base of operation. Pussy Galore relocated to New York and soldiered on for a few more years until their breakup with John Spencer, forming a slightly cleaner, more direct version of Pussy Galore's sound with the John Spencer Blues Explosion. Well, there you go. Now, the Blues Explosion's debut album, Crypt Style, from 1992, with the three members dressed in drag on the front cover, a la the New York Dolls, is a tour de force and one of the greatest and grimiest examples of bluesy rock and roll and rockabilly getting ass fucked by punk rock. <laughs> uh, to this day, I still think it's John Spencer's best album. Nevertheless, the music press started to pick up on Spencer's gonzo music and uh, Elvis on crack musical persona with his 1993 album Extra With. While not having the shock of the new that Crypt Style provided, Extra With still packed a dirty punch with fuzz tones on his guitar that predict Jack White's similar explorations on the instrument with the White Stripes. Uh, History of Lies takes a lurching traditional blues riff and piles on tons of attitude and punk nastiness with Spencer addressing his enemy with the hilarious threat, I'm going to treat you like a stepchild. <laughs> Uh, you have Backslider, which launches into uh, launches with one of Spencer's gnarliest riffs and a groove so hellacious that it dares the listener not to dance. Uh, soul typecast lives up to its name with a groove, rhythm, and bass line seemingly taken straight from any artist on legendary Southern R&B soul record label Stacks. But only if that rhythm section was drenched on, drenched in whiskey, smeared in punk rock grime, and forced to snort some dirty cocaine. Um, extra width is more than fun rock and roll. It's mean, nasty, gleefully filthy, and a garage rock classic. Chris, are you down and dirty with the Spencer Blues Explosion? I, ab- I absolutely am. I, 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 back in the day, and I hadn't heard them in a long time. Until uh, the coming back around here for the fourth golden age of rock, uh, yeah, they John John Spencer was good. I mean, he he wrote the songs, he had the aesthetic. Uh, you know, the guitar stuff was 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 just fantastic. Um, he was just as clever as Jack White in terms of effects and the kind of things that that, that he did. And uh, I would say Spencer, like he had his following, he had his cult. Uh, like, you know, he had a video, a couple videos that were uh, directed by Weird Al, of all people, uh, uh-huh. that uh, that hit MTV. Uh, but he was probably fair to say he was about eight or nine years too late <laughs> or too early. Yeah. Yeah. Too early. Yeah. He, he was he was too early. He, he was too, eight or nine years too early because, you know, you had the stripes, you had the hives, uh, you know, you had a lot of those uh, sort of gr- garagey sort of, uh, you know, the kills, uh, the black keys all of them uh, that that kind of caught on and became, became chic. Whereas I, I don't think Royal Trucks and Blues Explosion really kind of came, you know, they had their cult and they had their influence and maybe there was a little bit of scene of a scene around it. And yeah, like you said that they, they had this kind of uh, edge and attitude and scuzziness to them. And uh, 
very funny stuff, like whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, they were very funny, uh, in with their attitude. But, you know, again, I think that especially Spencer, Spencer should have been a star. Uh, he just had, he had star quality to him. And so always was confused why he didn't blow up beyond the little bit, uh, bit of success uh, that he had. Uh, yeah. Royal trucks. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing was like Royal trucks is like 10 years after this, they were doing the same shit. Uh, you know, yeah. so they, they, they were like, well, yeah, kind of. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's, here's the, th- you're kind of right, you know? Um, and here's the thing with Royal trucks. I mean, I don't disagree with you, but here's the thing. They were a more esoteric affair. Sure at least musically than Spencer um, while still rooted in blues and clearly punk in their attitude, their rhythms and time, time signatures were off kilter. Their riffs were ragged and choppy. Their vocals were sometimes disoriented and off key distortion and feedback were very prominent. And overall the music usually felt like the band was going to fall apart at any second. Um, this decadent sound was clearly an artistic choice it could have also been the natural result of a couple being stoned off their asses on heroin. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> because both both Hegarty and Harema were notorious and unabashed heroin junkies. Um, you could hear it in the lyrics. When drugs weren't overtly referenced, they would sing character-driven narratives about junkies, drug dealers, pimps, whores, unethical drug-providing doctors, you know, and all kinds of underworld <laughs> scumbags. Um, however, though, this one album, Cats and Dogs, released in 1993, was their fourth album and the one that started to garner them some critical acclaim and serious street credibility. Um, This was a band whose dirty, gritty sound was as authentic as indie rock got, to be honest, and left no doubt that this band walked it like they talked it. And after quite a run of consistently good albums, I think they're good. Yeah, you're right. It is kind of more the same, but still pretty good. And it lasted into the early noughties. Cats and Dogs remains their best album and the purest distillation of their ugly yet beautiful sound. Hell, even Stephen Malkmus of Pavement was impressed enough to write a song not only about them, but one that actually sounded like them, you know? Yeah. Heaven is a Heaven is a Truck from Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain is one of the highlights from one of Pavement's greatest albums. So Chris, I get the I get the idea you don't get as down on down and dirty with Royal Trucks as you do with John Spencer. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing with Royal Trucks though is that they're I could see why Malcolmus, it's funny that you say that because they're another one of these uh instances of of good music done badly. Uh it, yeah. it, it's it's like this kind of slowed and stretched and uh like you said, it it it's scuzzy and it's it's got that scuzzy and it's got that sort of distorted uh, feel to it, but it, it also could be very, very pretty. And I mean, clearly, I mean, I guess if you wanted to call it like, uh, heroin emo or or something like that, (laughs) (laughs) I guess you could, yeah, I guess you could say that because, because even like, like, uh, the song teeth, which I love, uh, yeah, that like, it sound the song itself sounds like it's nodding off. It's be- yeah. it's beautiful, yeah. but there's like this kind of wobbly, almost like like you said, almost kind of inert. Like, oh, is this song? Is, is are they about to fall apart? You know, it's kind of like the right. uh, you know, it's like they're trying to play instruments while rolling downhill. Your resident curmudgeons recently switched our hosting platform to Podbean, and what a move it's proving to be. For the equivalent of 9 bucks a month, we get quality, reliable hosting 
that allows us to distribute the curmudgeon rock report wide and far to all the places where you find all of the other podcasts. We also get to customize a pretty good website. Visit us at curmudgeonrock.podbean.com. And we also receive some excellent statistics that tell us when and how you listen to this here creation. Most importantly, Podbean is its own community of podcasters and opens us and you to some pretty incredible music podcasts besides this incredible one. We urge you to especially check out History in Five Songs with prolific writer Martin Popoff and Song Exploder, which expertly guides listeners through the making of a great pop song. Podbean, it ain't bad. (laughs) So now we're going to go from these sort of uh, pseudo uh, blues uh, kind of like greasy, grimy, uh, garagey type type of folks to just plain old bash the fuck out metal bands. Uh, right. So we're talking about heavy metal. Now, uh, we have proffered in the last um, maybe three or four episodes of this podcast that uh, there was this point where uh, metal as we knew it ceased to be metal as we knew it and got taken over by Nirvana and grunge. And then eventually we segue into new metal. Uh, that is not quite true. Um, so one of the things, and we've said this about Metallica in the past and Guns N' Roses, is that um, those bands, again, Metallica and Guns N' Roses, and in a way Slayer, they kind of reminded metal fans of why they got into heavy metal in the first place. It had nothing to do with the glam. It had nothing to do with the sheen or the hair metal or the pop or the melody or the look. It had everything to do with that hard, heavy, uh, nasty, scuzzy uh, aesthetic, you know, the kind of the, you know, the, the, the greasy hair, the, the jean jackets, the, the you know, the, the black uh, coats and, or, and kind of that uh, the, the, uh, the pained, uh, tortured man of the people uh, kind of thing. And so after Nirvana came, you know, metal took a huge hit, but it was not dead. And there were some bands that actually were managed to extend metal during this period. Now, I'm going to look in this and say this is a period where what I could call mid-tempo metal came, to be, came into being. Uh, yeah. Yes, because if you think about heavy metal or if you think about a lot of the uh, you know, the seventies bands like black Sabbath and ACDC. And you think about like early, like kind of those, those types of bands, like the kind of stonerish, uh, end of the metal, uh, spectrum, you think of slow, heavy banging riffs and this sort of, you know, brontosaurus, uh, stomp, uh, Zeppelin falls into that too. And then on the other end, you get the speed metal and the death metal of Slayer, Metallica, Anthrax, uh, Megadeth. So metal, Really, you think of well, like Iron Maiden, which is, you know, big, glorious and fast. You know, Judas Priest uh, and right. uh, Iron Maiden are fast. So you got really fast on one end and really sludgy on the other. Well, what if there was such a thing as mid-tempo metal? Uh, we started to uh, get that in uh, the early 90s. And especially here in 93 is when it kind of uh, hit uh, to the point where people were like, you know what, there might actually be something going on here. So we're going to focus on uh, three albums in particular that kind of go into this uh, mid-tempo metal or groove metal, as I've seen it called, uh, and three really just brilliant albums. And 
kind of showed that metal uh, had some legs. And these are Pantera's Vulgar Display of Power, which actually came out in 92, but became big in 93. Uh, Sepultura's Chaos AD, and then Tool's Undertow. Uh, All three of these, it's kind of interesting that you've got these three albums that ostensibly are uh, in the same space. They kind of these mid-tempo grooves, these clipped riffs, these kind of uh, weird kind of shifts in in time signature and and mood, and uh, this sort of um, almost kind of like almost like a hypnotic effect with the riffs. It's very riff heavy, but also uh, very uh, engaging and and very like I said again, sort of hypnotic. It's kind of interesting that all three of them hit at the same time. So like, who do you yeah. who do you call the innovator? You know, they, yeah. but uh, one of the things that we'll focus on here is that these three bands, they had different paths to get to the same place. Yeah. Uh, so starting with Pantera, a um, bunch of a uh, bunch of white supremacist assholes from uh, suburban Dallas, Texas, uh, who, yeah, they, they did feature uh, the Confederate flag kind of prominently uh, in their shtick, but they also were uh, a really talented band. Why? Because they saw what wasn't working for them. They started off, amazingly enough, uh, you have Dimebag Daryl and Vinnie Paul, uh, the Arthur brothers. Uh, yeah. They started off as a glam metal band in the in yep. the mid-80s and wasn't quite working for them. And eventually they uh, they brought in Phil, uh, Phil Anselmo, who's uh, one of, uh, I don't know, is he a sociopath? I mean, is he an asshole? Uh, let's just put it this way. He was such an unlikable guy that even after Dimebag Daryl was murdered, uh, the other surviving members of the band wanted nothing to do with them. And I guess Daryl's wife said, if you show up to this funeral, I'll shoot you in the head. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so this, this is how bad, yeah. this is how bad it got. Uh, but anyway, they figured out that wasn't working. And so they kept going. And then Dimebag Daryl came up with, uh, probably uh, the greatest and most important sound and style of metal rhythm guitar since Tony Iommi. Uh, yeah. I, I really believe that because think about it, everything that comes after this record, uh, corn, Limp Biscuit, uh, the Deftones, uh, maybe even Rage, I guess a bunch of these albums. Think about it. Every single one of those bands and their famous albums rips off Dimebag Daryl. So, you know, you get these riffs, uh, really just magnificent stuff. Uh, we- weird, noisy, down-tuned. Yeah. Kind of kind of like a fragmented, like they're not complex fragments of riffs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly. It, it's clipped, it's groovy, it's, yeah, like you said, it's kind of almost inert in how they, they put it together. And so, you know, you get uh, Hollow uh, and uh, uh, This Love and some of the other stuff that you get on, on this record that just really just kind of, just it stomps. I mean, that that's really, it's, it's a stomping, galloping uh, kind of druggy uh, metal. Beyond uh, Pantera, now we will talk a little bit about Sepultura's Chaos AD. Uh, love this record. Let's talk about them a little bit. So we, we're talking about a band fronted 
and formed by the Cavalera brothers, uh, Max and Igor. Uh, they grew up very, very poor in Brazil. It's actually kind of an interesting story. Their mom was a fashion model. Their father was some kind of big shot diplomat or politician. Father dies, and they fall into extreme poverty, which I guess means the, uh, her modeling career didn't have that much traction. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so they, they scrap and claw, and... Uh, they discovered Slayer, which is, uh, you know, as rebel music as it gets. And so you take this death metal uh, idiom that they uh, were introduced to and loved and grasped onto, along with the perspective of uh, very poor Brazilian folks who uh, had that uh, questioning, uh, that, that spirit of questioning authority and that uh, natural rebellion. You put it all together and you get this amazing uh, metal band. Again, they started off as a really edgy death metal uh, band that was very much in that Slayer uh, and uh, sort of Norwegian, kind of Norwegian-ish death metal uh, vein. But as they grew, uh, they started to discover punk. They discovered Sabbath and ACDC and Zeppelin and some of these other bands and, and punk. And they really started to um, uh, develop a very singular, uh, very sophisticated music vocabulary so that just like Pantera, they kind of arrived at this clipped, uh, very, uh, you know, kind of very rollicking or very uh, mean and uh, lean approach to riffing. And they uh, really... Uh, debuted this very uh, strongly on Chaos AD. Uh, a lot of really great uh, stuff on there. It's it's a little bit of a long record, but it is mesmerizing. And uh, Max uh, Cavalera, they and by now they were uh, at the beginning of their career. They literally needed interpreters in the studio to cut their <laughs> records. Yeah, but by this time, uh, Max is speaking pretty good English, and and so one of the more engaging growls uh, in heavy metal at this point. So you take these sort of athletic um, uh, clipped, awesome uh, riffs, and it just had this kind of stomp and this, uh, this ability to mesmerize same, same kind of vein, uh, same uh, aesthetic as Pantera, but done uh, less meatheadedly. Uh, yeah. One thing you could say about Pantera, great band, but they were a bunch of meatheads. Yes. Uh, uh, these guys way more sophisticated, way more intelligent and had a lot more interesting uh, stuff to say. And they said it uh, really well again on KSAD. And so now the third uh, member of this uh, triad of mid temple metal bands that broke in 1993 is tool who could not be more different than the other two uh, yeah, no in shit. the sense. Yeah, exactly. Now tool as uh, we, everybody knows tool, uh, they blew up uh, with Anima, and now they're known as the crafters of long, winding, uh, adventurous, uh, risk-taking, uh, experimental songs that never end. I well, so- although they haven't really taken any risks since like 2001. <laughs> All their records sound the same nowadays. But anyway, uh, so let's talk a little bit about Tool, though. In 1993, uh, they... Their backgrounds are interesting. They are much more uh, upper crust than either Pantera or or Sepultura. Uh, Maynard uh, James Keenan is a an art school guy. 
Adam, Adam Jones, the uh, guitarist, grew up with Tom Morello in a suburb of Chicago. Uh, Danny Carey, I think, was native uh, to California. Uh, these are guys, they converged on L.A. They are educated. They are uh, smarter. They're a little bit more muso uh, than your average metal guys. And yet, they started off as a pretty orthodox metal band. And so they debut first. They had an EP called Opiate, which is really good. Yeah, uh, really good. But like really, uh, if like people like younger folks that know Tool from Lateralis and afterwards, yeah, uh, heard Opiate, they would be shocked. Yeah, that that band could rock that hard, but be that efficient. Yeah, uh, it's, it's punk rock by comparison. <laughs> yeah, I mean essentially. And so they follow up with that, and they do Undertow. Now, uh, Undertow is a really great album. Uh, again, this is Tool at their most efficient. Uh, this is when they're still making like four-minute, five-minute, six-minute long songs. Uh, they still have a sense of drama, but, I mean, you're talking like some really great riffage and yeah. really focused stuff. I mean, prison sex, uh, <laughs> even though it's a little bit, yes, I mean, it, 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 the censors love, uh, love Tool. Because, you know, even back then their stuff was kind of fucked up in terms of the imagery and the lyrics and the, yeah. uh, the themes. Uh, but they got themselves on MTV through Prison Sex and Sober. And part of it was it was not only the dramatics of the music and, or you know, Maynard's vocals, which are incredible, and Adam Jones's riffs, which are incredible. And Danny Carey, who, is, again, is you know, kind of a theme of this episode, an amazing drummer. Uh, but honestly, he may be the best out of all of them. Danny yeah. Carey. Oh yeah. He, yeah, he really, he really is. He's, he's right there. He's on the very rarefied air with like Pert and Mike Portnoy and guys like that as, yeah. as just all time great drummers. But here's the thing with tool. Again, these are art school guys. They're artists. Uh, Adam Jones, for what it's worth, never knew this. All of the visual stuff that we associate with the first couple of tool albums. His. It's all him. It's all him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he, he's the illustrator. He's, I think he's the animator too. Yeah. Uh, that, that does all those things. Those, uh, those amazing videos for, uh, sober and, uh, stink fist, otherwise known as track one, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, when you think about it, that, that, that's all Adam Jones. But here's the thing. When you get guys that are that sophisticated and that smart and that artsy, when they're doing traditional metal, you just got to know they're going to get bored really quickly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's kind of what happened. Anima took it up a step, uh, as we know. And Arturo and I think have probably said it a couple of times on this cast. One of the greatest metal albums of all time. Uh, just really ambitious, uh, really just sort of breathtaking uh, uh, in its um, in its sound and its structures and its experimentation. Uh, but then, OK, so that was an acceptable uh, way to take it. And then they just kind of <clears throat> they kind of fell into getting more ridiculous and they by 2005 what we say they were basically a parody of themselves right yeah I mean, oh, oh six when they put out that album in oh six yeah by then you know yeah but by, by the noughties it was like you know you just go see tool to see to hear him play their stuff from the 90s and some lateralis because they just started they just started repeating themselves and recycling themselves yeah you know? exactly yeah they got to a certain point where they stopped trying however back then they were start trying but they, you kind of figure when you hear interviews with Keenan, uh, you get a sense that these are a bunch of guys who were great metal musicians who thought metal was beneath them. 
Yep. <laughs> but, but boy, could they do it well. Yeah. So like I said, so all three of these bands, you know, you've got Rednecks from Texas, you've got uh, Poor Smart Boys from Brazil, and you've got these artsy-fartsy uh, assholes uh, from L.A., <laughs> And they all arrive at the same sort of mid-tempo formula. Uh, One thing I do want to share, and then I'll turn it over to you, Arturo, uh, is uh, I I found a Reddit uh, thread that had this old uh, interview with Maynard from an Australian radio program in 1997 where they ask him his uh, top five sort of seminal records of influence on him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty much what you would expect. Uh, Well, sort of, but there's some surprises. So number one, uh, to nobody's surprise, King Crimson's Red, Uh, (laughs) you know, uh, that they were a very proggy band. And of course, King Crimson's uh, Red is is pretty much the Sgt. Pepper's of prog rock. The other four may surprise you a little bit more. Uh, Joni Mitchell's Hegira. Interesting. Because I guess Maynard is a huge fan of uh, Jayco. Yeah. Uh, Swan's Holy Money slash Greed. Wow. Uh, by, by, by the way, Jacob he's Jacko Pastorius, the legendary jazz bass player, for those of you who don't know. Yes. Jacko <laughs> Pastorius. Yes. Yeah. Uh, amazing bass player. Uh, Swan's Holy Money and Greed. Right. Uh, which is you know a, a double blast of sort of that like uh, art metal. Yeah. Uh, from there. Uh, Led Zeppelin's Physical Graffiti. Uh, he, not, not, he, not surprising, not surprising. Yeah, and of course he especially talks up Kashmir, no surprise, because they're yeah. a, a big fan of Middle Eastern rhythms. Speaking of which, here is the fifth and most surprising of these, uh, Peter Gabriel's Passion, oh. uh, which is the soundtrack or the score to Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. Interesting. And so it is a musical, it is Peter Gabriel's musical t- scoring of the story of the gospels hmm. and it is a it really is i mean i hadn't heard in a long time but it it is incredible it is very well orchestrated very well written very steeped in the middle east it has that sort of biblical drama you know the kind of like if you go on youtube and you know there's there's this band that does all the psalms and it has that sort of drama and ah, yeah. Ah, that, yeah, yeah. That, that you would expect but it turns out so you take those albums and all of these sort of uh, sort of wonky, uh, very musical, very Middle Eastern, uh, uh, and very artsy uh, references, and they're the influences. Uh, they're the biggest influence on this band that 19, 1993 did one of the great Orthodox mid-tempo metal records of that era. Now, all of that said, Arturo, uh, what is your uh, take on Pantera, <laughs> Sepultura, and Tool? It took me, well, Tool, I was always a fan of Tool because of the, the exoticness of their, or the exotic nature of their sound. You knew it was metal, but it was something deeper than metal because obviously these guys aspired to be more than metal. They're LA art school students, mm-hmm. like you said, um, with, with the raw visceral shit that Pantera and Sepultura did. It took me years to come around to it. It wasn't until like I was in my 30s, in my early 30s, um, especially when I moved to South America for a little while, that's when I got into Sepultura. Mm-hmm. When I moved, when I moved to Chile, you know, the, the, the South Americans they were just some serious heavy metal, and uh, obviously that's when I got into shit like Pantera, more Sepultura than Pantera, but that kind of like really hard edged, you know, um, uh, just just uh, you know choppy metal. 
um, with, with like growling vocals and shit. That's it. As I got older, that's when I got into it. So mm-hmm. yeah, so that, that that's when I really uh, um, was really became enamored, especially with Sepultura's uh, Chaos AD record, which I do agree is one of the ten greatest, most original, unique heavy metal oh, albums yeah. of all time. So. So we move on to our last segment of this 1993 special episode of the fourth golden age of rock. And what is it? Boston pops and rocks again. Yep. Uh, in the first episode of this fourth golden age of rock series, we explored the fertile Boston music scene that produced so many bands whose work would lead into this fourth golden age. Well, 1993 was a banner year for the Boston scene. No heavy metal, like we spoke of earlier with Tool and Sepultura or, or Sepultura or Pantera, but some still groovy, some groovy rock and roll nevertheless. And several bands and artists would release their best work or albums that rank among their best work. So let's dig in very quickly and do a little, a little sprint. Morphine, Cure for Pain. We talked in depth about this band and this album many episodes ago in our vault segment, but it bears reiterating the bass, saxophone, drums, trio, Morphine were one of the most singular and unique American bands of the 1990s and perhaps of all time. Jazzy sounds surely emanated from Dana Colley's sax, but Dana Colley was a saxophone player. But the band's music was steeped in an innovative, sexy, sensual stew that blended blues, soul, and subtle funk. The use of space was as much of an instrument as as any of the band members' three instruments, and singer-bassist Mark Sandman's, uh, Sandman's exquisite baritone voice glided on top of the band's smooth, cool sound, adding emotional depth to their already irresistible sound. Um, Cure for Pain from 1993 is their masterpiece. And while I know that many people out there, particularly millennials and Gen Z folks, like to listen to individual songs rather than whole albums via whatever streaming service they use, this is an album worth listening to in its entirety. Um, You can check out other Morphine tracks individually, but the album Cure for Pain is one of the best records of the 1990s and an essential entry for the fourth golden age of rock. Chris? Yeah, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. When I think about cure, uh, cure for pain, I mean, yes, I mean, very unique. You know, the the whole two string bass uh, saxophone thing, but it's the spaces in between the notes, and uh, you know, there's certain bands that know how to do that, and you know, Bowie actually was really great at that too, with being able to you know take advantage of that spaces and the um, and the to be able to just sort of sort of fill that you know that that entire um, that entire measure and uh, just maximize that and so that I think is what draws me in as a listener to cure for pain is sure. that is again is that use of it you know, not to sound like basketball but space and pace <laughs> yeah uh, yeah they were yeah. they were really really good at that and that is a classic album yeah. Another classic album, probably the other truly great album of this year from the Boston or Massachusetts scene, Dinosaur Jr., Where You Been? The band that brought the idea of the classic rock guitar hero uh, back in the late 1980s for a generation weaned on punk, 
post-punk and hardcore, released one of the best albums in their brilliant discography in 1993 with Where You Been. It was their highest charting album in the UK uh, at, uh, uh, at number 10 and their second highest charting album ever in the US at a respectable number 50. They even had a moderate hit on rock radio with Start Choppin', who's a, well choppy guitar intro is one of the most distinctive sounds in 90s alternative rock that leads into one of the coolest and most glorious riffs Jay Mascus ever concocted. Another standout track and another single off the album is the epic power ballad Get Me, which has some of the most emotionally powerful guitar work Jay Mascus ever put on record. Critics of Dinosaur Jr. have always accused a band of aping Neil Young and Crazy Horse a little too much. But when Mascus is channeling Uncle Neil in such a convincing and more importantly, non-reverent way, does it really fucking matter? You know, I mean, I've always said that Dinosaur Jr. draws from Neil Young more than they sound like him. And Mascus' yeah. solos, his solos never sound like Neil Young's solos, you know, so. No, they don't. So, you know. Um, what else is new is another great track that layers one beautiful melody on top of another and flows into a gorgeous acoustic and guitar strings outro while on the way finds dinosaur junior in turbocharged mode with drummer Murph. Yes, he went by the name Murph, <laughs> uh, always one of American rock's most underrated drummer finds uh, drummers finds him writing Mascus's guitar pyrotechnics to a polyrhythmic assault that echoes the band's roots in hardcore punk. Um, Mascus himself in interviews has rated this as Dinosaur Jr.'s third best album. Chris, where do you stand briefly? It's their third best album. Now we're going to go down to the B teams, <laughs> uh, the minor leagues here, but still some good stuff. Buffalo Tom and their album, Big Red Letter Day. Buffalo Tom were always one of the more overlooked bands of the rich Boston scene. Yeah. And they released possibly their best album in 93 with Big Red Letter Day. Count them as one of the army of bands inspired and influenced by R.E.M. in the 1990s, or more accurately, the power pop of Big Star as filtered through R.E.M. Uh, the singles off this album that should have been hits were the beautiful swaying ballad late at night with its palpable sense of yearning, a perfect fit for the angsty alternative rock wonderland of the, of the decade. And uh, I'm allowed, uh, which is a moving mid tempo beauty that builds to a rousing, almost anthemic chorus. Chris, where are you on Buffalo Tom? Uh, I, I like them. Uh, Soda Jerk actually was the big uh, in heavy rotation song on MTV. Right. And actually, actually, Buffalo Tom, uh, they're one of the bands that I kind of lumped into the larger uh, uh, world that we talked about earlier. Those bands like yeah. Archers of Loaf and Afghan Wigs that were kind yeah. of in that transitional, right? Uh, kind of the transition from college rock to emo. Buffalo Tom is one of those bands that was uh, among the uh, the top uh, of those performers in this 93-94 era. Sure. And another band that's probably in that same realm. Yep. Belly. Belly Absolutely. and their debut album star. Tanya Donnelly formed Belly after she left Throwing Muses at the beginning of the 1990s. And Star, their debut album, is still regarded as their best album. They even had a sizable hit on rock radio with the brooding mid-tempo uh, jangle pop of Feed the Tree. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Personally, personally, I've never been a fan of that particular song. It just isn't hooky enough for me. I prefer the deep fuzz riff, weird time signature, and a quirky chorus of sad dress and the mm-hmm. beautiful and the beautiful ballad stay. Um, they would release one more album in '95 and a st- and have a stint opening for REM on their world tour of that year before Donnelly broke up broke that band up. Chris, you were always a bigger Belly fan than me, huh? Yeah, and one that they're really really good. Uh, like I said, Tiny Donnelly, a great front lady. Uh, some really good guitar stuff in that band, and you know, not to sound like a I I am a reformed Neanderthal, but uh, that back then. Uh, they kind of blew my mind. They were like the first time that uh, the notion of uh, pretty ladies fronting a hard rock band was kind of like, oh, cool. Uh, we people, we were seventeen, eighteen years old. We yes. were stupid. We were stupid kids back then. Yeah, I, I. That's just why I said in my Neanderthal thing, this idea of uh, Tanya Donnelly being uh, quite good looking but also rocking hard uh, was really, really uh, kind of exciting for uh, an idiot uh, in his teens. Anyway. And here's another band with a very good-looking front person, The Lemonheads, and their album, Come On, Feel the Lemonheads. Now, on the, fir- on the first episode of this series, I confess to not being a big Lemonheads fan. They're a little too lightweight and middle-of-the-road for my tastes. But Come On, Feel the Lemonheads, released in the fall of 93, is their most commercially successful record and produced what was by far their biggest hit. Uh, Into Your Arms, which was huge on U.S. rock radio and a top 20 hit in the U.K. Um, It's whimsical, breezy, R.E.M. light college rock is definitely one of the best pop songs Evan Dando ever wrote. I also like the country flavored Big Gay Heart uh, with its nifty pedal steel guitar work. And then finally, Juliana Hatfield and her album Become What You Are. Now, Hatfield had been kicking around the Boston scene for a while before this album in 93, uh, Become What You Are, finally garnered her critical acclaim. It also got her a moderate hit on rock radio when Spin the Bottle, a pretty folk rock tale of teen sex angst, was included in the soundtrack to the following year's Gen X romantic comedy Reality Bites, starring Winona Ryder, Ben Stiller, and Ethan Hawke. Ah, those were the days. Yes, y- yes, <laughs> uh, they were. While Spin the Bottle is a delectable slice of light alt rock, my favorite song on the album is President Garfield, which starts off as a mid tempo strummer, typical of college radio at the time, then transforms itself midway into groovy rock and roll with a deep grunge riff and various tempo and rhythm changes. Hatfield would spend the next couple of decades under the mainstream radar, but maintains a, to this day, a small but devoted following with several consistently good albums. And she still records and performs to this day. She is indeed a rock and roll lifer. And Chris, that brings us to the end of 1993 in the fourth golden age of rock. Yes. What a trip. <laughs> Definitely what a trip. Uh, it, it was a tremendous, uh, tremendous year. I look back on it and it's it's a very underrated year in rock history. Uh, a lot happened and a lot of stuff I love. So next up in our journey through the fourth golden age of rock is the year 1994. One of the worst things to ever happen to a rock and roller and to rock and roll itself occurred in this year. You probably know what we were talking about. But it was also a year that brought joy. 
including the debuts of a boho prodigal son who choked on some splinters, and some blokes from England who blasted Britpop into our collective conscience. Keep hope alive and keep supporting women. We'll talk to everyone again in two weeks.